because we all relate to cooking, right? Well, we cook at home, we do certain, and we like it, and it's something that's pleasurable. And advertising, I think, is the same way. Like, people think they know it because they're exposed to advertising. They edit a home movie on iMovie at home. <laughs> and, and they, they you know, it, they don't give you the credit, like, to understand, like, oh, no, this takes, like, a lot of hours of learning and making mistakes and getting your hands slapped and burning in your case, burning your hands and, and all of that toil. And, and in our hand, you know, in our case, it's like, you know, I started out in this business, literally picking up the bosses, dry cleaning, literally making photocopies. That's how I started out in the business because I didn't know shit. And the only way you learn is just by being around it. And, and so you have to start at the bottom rung, but I think I think you might agree, and I think from what I've seen of of everything that I've seen from you, a dishwasher can become a great chef. Oh no, they, and they should be. Yeah, and they should if, be. If they if that's what they want, a, a dish. The point <coughs> is, the smart dishwasher isn't just washing dishes. He's looking around, seeing what's going on, and he's learning. <laughs> And uh, captain of a ship that has a bib and a Michelin star that is tattooed somewhere on his uh, on his body. Yep. Um, we are joined by another man who also has recently acquired an award tattoo. His name is Henry Gomez. He has a lion on his ankle that we will explain momentarily. He is all of the things that Michael Beltran loves, a Belen graduate, a Gator fan. Gator alumnus. Yeah, a Gator the alumnus. The list is long. The list is long. Uh, the lion is because he won a Cannes lion in Cannes, which I am told is in France. Uh, <laughs> and we'll let uh, Michael Beltran take it from there, explaining what all of that is even about. We're, we're actually going to title this episode, How Does It Feel to Be a Winner? And that's why my mic is getting shut off. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. So how does it feel to be a winner? Oh, man, it's cloud nine, dude. Yeah. You, you know, you you put in, I've been in advertising 26 years. And uh, when you get into the business, you know, as a youngster, you learn about this coveted award, the the lion at Cannes. And mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like hunting like a real lion, you know. And, you know, the years pass and you have some like brushes with greatness and some opportunities, but they don't pan out. And, you know, I'm, you know, for the industry, I'm pretty old. I'm, I'm up there. And really, you you start, you start seeing uh, your chances diminishing. And, you know, I, I joined this agency I'm at now, Zuby, which is a story in and of itself an amazing, and I know you're you know, you're Cuban American and you're very proud of that. It's a real Cuban American success story. The, cool. the, the agency that I'm at now and, uh, I joined and, um, it was a shared goal that I had with our creative director. I, I work in something called strategy. Uh, so I write creative briefs. I, I kind of have to hold the hand between the business side of, you know, the client's business and the creative side of like actually making the advertising and I'm kind of that go between. But uh, our our creative director Ivan Kaya and I had this had the shared goal of, you know, elevating the creative at the agency and also doing work that would uh be award-winning and and get noticed. 
And so, you know, it was the culmination of like, you know, 26 year career to, to get there and, and when we won a silver lion, so they, that bronze, silver and gold, and then you can win a grand prix. Um, but it's to put like some perspective on it, thousands of submissions every year. Can the can lion festival of creativity is been around since 1954. So one of the oldest, if not the oldest, um, and it's, probably the most prestigious although arguably there are some others that are harder to win um but it's it's the one that people like really shoot for mm -hmm. and of all the thousands of submissions about seven percent get what's called shortlisted which means you know they they make it to the round of judging where the actual lions are going to be awarded and then only two to three percent actually win a lion uh, so, and the higher you go, obviously there's fewer golds than there are silvers and fewer silvers than there are bronzes. So the answer to the question is, you know, I've just been floating on cloud nine for the last three weeks. It's been friggin' amazing. I feel you. How many people are a part of the team that won this award? So it's actually a, a big team and the story is an interesting one. Um, th there were four create, and we could, I could tell you the story of the, what the idea is and how it kind of, it's, it's kind of convoluted and it's a long windy story, but there were four creatives that, that worked on uh, that created the idea. Um, I participated because I wrote the brief. I made some contributions to modifying the idea the way that I thought that it could possibly work and ended up actually working. And um, we had, of course their boss, the creative director who puts the team together and, uh, there was another important member of, of our team named Pablo Miro, who he heads up growth uh, at the agency, which is new business, like trying to get new accounts. Right. But he's also somebody who's kind of like, we're like the three musketeers, me, the creative director and, and Pablo together um, in like seeking this out. So it's a, it, it's a big team. And then the idea was actually executed by our sister agency called David in Sao Paulo, Brazil. That's where the idea came to life. And so there's a whole team of people in Sao Paulo that are also sharing in the credit for the thing. But the idea originated at Zuby Advertising here in Miami. Amazing. So you would say what? I don't know, 20 people? Probably. 20 that, people. That just there's six seven people on our team alone that right. that were that were involved in it and you know that so the idea basically was um for burger king um and the story i don't know if you're interested in the story no, but go for it. Uh, so the story is i i came into zuby like i said four years ago and um I came in with a lot of fast food experience. I, I had worked five years on McDonald's. Before that, I worked a couple of years on Burger King. Uh, before that, I had worked on Dunkin' Donuts for six years. And after the McDonald's, I worked on Subway. So I've, I got like four different fast food and a lot of experience in, in the category. But the interesting thing is that between the time that I stopped working on Burger King and started working on McDonald's and the time I started working at Zuby, Burger King had gone through a lot of metamorphosis, metamorphosis, and and um, as in what though, like changing their brand. And they their... had they so they had been they had been acquired and gone private. They had been acquired by uh, by a Brazilian hedge fund, um, oh, and so um, and they made a lot of changes, and the the brand kind of went down before it started coming back. But the 
among the people that, that brought the brand back was a Brazilian CMO named Fernando Machado. Fernando Machado became very famous in advertising circles because he took a lot of risks. And Burger King started doing a lot of risky ideas that were getting noticed, getting a lot of publicity, winning a lot of awards. But it wasn't just about awards for Machado. You know, Burger King is a challenger brand. You know, it's half the, not half, it's about two-thirds the size of McDonald's in the U.S. Um, it, it's nowhere near as big internationally. Um, and so their idea is, how do we maximize our much smaller budget? And the way to do it is to make a lot of noise with ideas that have what Machado called talkability. So ideas that you would execute, they wouldn't cost a lot of money to do, but they would generate a ton of publicity, a ton of public relations, you know, social media goes crazy for the ideas. So like to give you an example, one of the ideas was the Proud Whopper. Thanks to our sponsor, Aganorsa Leaf Cigars. Aganorsa Leaf is renowned throughout the world for its signature flavor that possesses all the great attributes of Nicaraguan terroir, along with classic Cuban aroma and flavor. Aganorsa Leaf is pleased to announce a brand new edition of Guardian of the Farm, Cerberus, named after the mythical three-headed hound that stood watch at the gates of Hades. This exciting new Nicaraguan puro uses 100% Aganorsa leaf tobacco and is wrapped in Aganorsa's new Corojo 2012 cover leaf, which adds a level of complexity to the blend, adding light spice and a rich, smooth body to the blend. When you smoke one of our world-class blends, you will experience the difference between ordinary tobacco and Aganorsa leaf. That's why we say our leaf is our strength. Learn more about Aganorsa Leaf and use their store locator and find a cigar shop near you that carries their products at www.aganorsaleaf.com. The two of us smoke Aganorsa Leaf cigars often. We also offer them to a lot of our guests, like, for example, Dave Arvello, who every time I post a picture of a, a Cerberus mentions to me in my DMs or in a text how cool the band is, which it actually is a pretty slick-looking band. Um, but also... I just want to note a little personal anecdote here so it's not all totally straight up red. I can say that uh, Michael Beltran will absolutely not only vouch for the quality of Aganorsa cigars, yeah. but you met a uh, Miami legend and handed him an Aganorsa cigar. I did meet uh, uh, a Miami legend. I was smoking nearby Alonzo Morning, and we had a conversation about cigars, and he handed me one of his, and I went inside. I bought this exact same cigar, and I handed Alonzo Morning. This Aganorsa cigar, and I said, try this, thank me later. I mean, if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. Aganorsaleaf.com Thanks to our sponsor, The Barrel. This is a barrel-style cooker you've heard a good amount about on uh, the podcast. I was able to use it a ton in my yard and loved it. It is a unique design, a conversation piece, and most importantly, at least to me, an easy-to-use cooker with loads of capacity for ribs, chicharrón, chicken, cheese, fish, burgers, and that is just a list of the stuff that I was cooking all at once in a cooker not much wider than I am, although I'm pretty wide these days. Mike, not long ago, we took some time during a podcast to cook with the barrel in the garden behind Ariet, so tell listeners about uh, all of that while I roll some footage of the cook for the video people. Very intrigued by the design and how like the actual chicken was going to come out. I... Would have loved to actually cook 
more than one thing in there, but the chicken came out delicious. It was very quick, too. And we only didn't cook more because it was just the two of us at that point. Right. So Just the... Anyways, I think about it, too, like the home cook that's going to cook this and maybe... They have four people at a table. Maybe they have six. Like you could cook a good amount of things because we also cook some veg on there on the top grill and then we cook the chicken underneath it. You know, the vegetables were delicious and they cooked incredibly fast. Uh, and the chicken itself was delicious. We used a whole green circle bird, um, truss tied and just hung that thing. And it was really, really good times. Get all of the information that you need. And of course, buy your own barrel at barrel the bbq.com barrel the bbq.com and use promo code pangong10 that's p a n c o n 10 for 100 dollars off 100 dollars of your order when you buy the barrel 100 dollars 100 dollars you know i saw a barrel the kids, at, the kids call it a, a c note i <laughs> i saw the barrel at a place the other day oh yeah that's right you sent me a picture yeah and i was telling everyone around it that was looking at it i said don't buy it here don't buy, you, it, don't you, buy it online don't be a dummy and hit pan con 10 and you're gonna save yourself 100 bucks i said what i said yeah do don't, it and they were don't like be a sucker and then the kid just run, ran out oh man he just ran straight out of the store peeled and, out in his car yeah straight to you know uh yeah yeah he was on it barrel the bbq.com promo code pan con 10 for 100 dollars off c note Introducing the newest line from Jura Estate Cigars. 20 Acre Farm is a complex, refined, and medium body cigar with a super oaky and cedary notes accompanied by a whisper of white pepper and a bright hint of citrus. Built at La Gran Fabrica, Jura Estate in Nicaragua using a velvety, and I mean velvety, Ecuadorian Connecticut shade grown wrapper. Under that wrapper is a sun-grown Habano binder and a filler blend of Nicaraguan tobaccos from Esteli and Jalapa in perfect balance with the opulent and majestic Florida sun-grown leaf. Florida sun-grown is also the name of the farm where that tobacco is lovingly grown and harvested by Jeff Borshoix, who's the guy you see in this video playing behind us, uh, on his pristine 20-acre plot of land near the central Florida town of Claremont. I have actually been to that farm, along with plenty of other cigar tobacco farms in Mexico, Central America, and the Dominican Republic. And what Jeff, who, by the way, is a very nice guy, there's actually a cigar box signed by Jeff hanging on my wall. Uh, what Jeff is doing there is super legit. Uh, so it's always cool to see products like his, which is the only premium cigar tobacco grown in Florida um, in products from a company like Drew Estate. Plus, 20 Acre Farm being a Drew Estate product means it's the creation of master blender and Pancom podcast guest, Willie Herrera. Support our guests and sponsors. Get it online. Ask your local cigar shop about 20 Acre Farm by Drew Estate. Learn more about Drew Estate and use their store locator to find a cigar shop near you that carries their products at DrewEstate.com. That's right. I'm probably going to smoke one of those right now. I, what are we waiting for? So several years ago, um, you know, they... You want, you want a drink? Absolutely. What would you like? I would like a beer. Uh, Father Francisco, if you if you can swing it from Taurus. I'm a Taurus guy. I'm a... <laughs> I am my favorite kind of guy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, the... The thing was, 
that Machado had these ideas. I was talking about Proud Whopper. Proud Whopper was an idea that Burger King executed at the Gay Pride Parade in San Francisco many years ago. And basically what they did was there's a restaurant that was right on the parade route. And so as the parade attendees would like walk in to get a drink or something to eat, they would get offered a Proud Whopper. And there would, people were like, okay, I'll take a Proud Whopper. And they, they didn't know what it was. And you get the Proud Whopper and inside it was just a regular Whopper. And it had, the rapper said inside we're all the same. And it was, you know, kind of controversial for the moment, right? It, you know, and, but it was like the first thing that like Burger King did that really got them on the map under this new leadership. And then he just had a string of... How, of, how many years ago was that? Uh, I want to say it was like eight, eight years really? ago, something like that. Yeah, it was, cool. it was around the time, right around the time that gay marriage was legalized, right? So it was an issue that was a co semi-controversial issue at the time. And so... Uh, this guy Machado basically came into Burger King and and kind of changed the rules of the game a little bit on marketing. And so he was kind of like the whale that everybody wanted to catch. Like everybody wanted to get in and meet this guy. And um, that's kind of where I come in because I joined Zuby and I tell the creatives at the agency that if we can come up with some killer ideas for Burger King, I might be able to swing the meeting to get us in front of the guy, right? And part of that is Belen relationships. There it is. Uh, there you go. Uh, you know, and and uh, you know, I so I briefed the creatives, um, and that's what I do. Like that's one of the main things I do as a strategist is I write creative briefs, which is basically give them all the background, like what we need to do for this assignment, what success looks like, etc. And, you know, I wrote this brief and it, it went in a certain direction. And the truth is the creatives ignored the direction that I gave them. But one of the, I think looking back, one of the important things about the brief that I wrote was that I found this video of Fernando Machado being interviewed. And so here's this guy, he's like this really sought after CMO, highly awarded guy. Older, younger. Um, young, younger than me for sure. Um, and he's probably in his forties, I would say. Um, and, and so I found this video where he was speaking actually at Cannes to a television station from India of all places. And he gave him like an hour interview. And he basically, when I saw the video, like six people had seen it, like it, it like had six views on YouTube. But he basically said what the BK brand strategy was, what he was looking for in ideas, this whole concept of talkability. So I cut up the interview into like little chunks um, that were important and I and I put them in the brief and I shared that with the creatives and I, I think looking back on it understanding the mindset of the client in this case a client that we didn't have in the agency um, was really really important and so the guys came back several months later with a bunch of ideas and we whittled them down to three ideas but really I knew that there was one idea in there that was a winner and and the idea, they called it the forbidden combo. And the forbidden combo is the Whopper yeah, yeah. With, with McDonald's fries, right? Like, how do you put those two together? And so that was their idea. They, they said, you know, people really love the Whopper. And I knew from my time working at Burger King, you know, the surveys of the big fast food chains, like the Whopper is the preferred burger, but everybody, you know, dies over McDonald's fries. And there, there are memes on the internet about, you know, uh, McDonald's fries and combining them together but it, nobody had ever like successfully found a way to pull it off so the creatives came to me with this idea that said you know we're going to pair these two things but they didn't really have was a way of doing it you know in their mind 
we're, you know, when someone would come in and order, we'd go run out and send somebody to McDonald's and buy them fries, which I knew was never going to fly. I mean, just for legal reasons. And, you know, you can't resell a competitor's product as your own. Right. But that's kind of where the experience of working in the category for a long time um, came in. And this was before the pandemic. So food delivery at the time was starting to increase, but it wasn't at the level yet that it would be later after the pandemic. Um, but I said, the way we do this is with a food delivery service, right? Like we find one of the partners that's working with both Burger King and McDonald's and we'll offer like this hidden menu option, like, you know, the forbidden uh, combo and it'll be like a gag. And what we'll do is we'll arrange for the delivery partner to pick up the Whopper first and then the fries. So the McDonald's can't cry foul that the fries got messed up or whatever. Cause we use their same delivery partner. We just, and we pick them up second so they made the change to the idea we i was able to get the meeting which was you know i was very happy because you know come in talking all this bluster we're gonna get a meeting with burger king the guys looked at me like you're you're fucking crazy you're you're never gonna be able to get a meeting with this guy and i should give a little background um our agency is a 50 year old agency we were turning 50 this year and we were founded by teres ubizarreta who was a cuban exile um, she was a high school graduate that had no college degree. Um, in 1962, when her husband lost her job, he came home and said, listen, I lost my job. You're going to have to go out and find a job and help support us. She went out and started looking for jobs. And the, the, the first job she could find was as a secretary in an ad agency. And she famously said, you know, she answered all the questions the same. She, they, they kept asking her all these things. She said, I don't know, but I'll, I'll learn. And so that disarming honesty of hers was what got her the job. And within 10 years, she had started her, her own agency. And today, Teres Ubizarreta is in the Advertising Hall of Fame. So like in our business, which not a lot of, I, I, I think there's a lot of parallels in the, to the, in the advertising. I was thinking about it on the way here, in the advertising business and the restaurant business. Um, and we could talk about those. But um, she's somebody who's recognized me. She, she was one of the founders of multicultural marketing, Hispanic marketing specifically. And we work at Zuby, we work you know, with big institutional blue chip clients. And blue chip clients are great because they're blue chip. You know, they pay their bills on time. What's they, an example of a blue chip? Ford Motor Company, oh. Chase Bank. Um, okay. th- those, those are big clients that we have. Um, and so, um, but they tend to be conservative and the Hispanic marketing space itself, the Hispanic advertising space tends to be conservative. So there's not a lot of opportunities to do kind of these risky big ideas, which is why we were kind of looking for an opportunity to do something to get the agency noticed and kind of participate in this big league of, of, you know, ideas that, that get executed on a yearly basis. When working with someone like, uh, what's his name? Francisco, right? So the the guy from BK, um, uh, Machado Fernando. Fernando, right. Working with someone that's a little more like forward thinking and like risk taking, how risky is that for the ad agency? Because if they're his ideas and you guys are just executing them, does that like, does that so, fuck up like your blue chip client? No, conservative no. Client? It, so there's really no bleed over in, in in that sense. I mean, I think the the thing that at Zuby. W- you know, we've always been a very good 
uh, agency with regards to servicing our clients. We've always been, you know, we've got longstanding relationships. Our relationship with the Ford Motor Company is 26 years. And that's very rare for an ad agency to have that length of time. With Chase Bank, we've been with them 16, 17 years. So it's a, it's a, you know, but like I said, they're big institutional clients don't necessarily move the fastest. So, but when you're in an agency, you want to have a portfolio of clients that, you know, run the gamut. So we're always looking at things that can elevate the profile of the agency, always looking at things, you know, that to bring in new business. Um, and so one of the, one of the interesting discoveries, you know, we, we won recently, um, last year, we won a piece of business for Mars Pet Care. So Mars, you know, the candy company, they have a pet care division. They have a bunch of different pet foods and pet treats and cheers. Cheers to the Winter Circle podcast brought to you by headphones here today <laughs> on Panko Podcast. Yes. And so, um, you know, one of the things was one of the Grand Prix winners at Cannes this year was one of our clients, Mars Pet Care, not for a brand of theirs that we work on, uh, they, they won a, a, a Grand Prix um, for Sheba cat food. Um, but, you know, so we have a client in-house that's willing to take those risks and, and right. do those things. And we've been able to do really nice creative for them as well. So I'm just like, I'm fascinated by the idea of like risk in advertising. Mm -hmm. You know, like who, like... I understand what you were talking about, like the, the proud Whopper thing. I thought that was like very cool. What's like another example of like a risky advertising move? So, uh, you know, I'll, a lot of, so I'll, I'll give you the, the example of, of Sheba, the one that I just said, you know, what they did was they're in the cat food industry, which means they use a lot of fish in their product, right? Cause that's what cats like. And so um, we're living in a time right now where people are very sensitive to, you know, overfishing and right. usage of, of natural resources. So what Sheba did in this particular case was they, they uh, participated in creating a, a reef system and repairing a reef system called the Hope Reef. And it's a, a reef, if you look it up on, on Google Earth and you look up Hope Reef, you can see it and you can magnify in. And it's something you could actually see from satellites. Uh, the thing like has regenerated a bunch of, of coral reef in that area of the ocean where, where it's located. And so it's a big brand action that isn't necessarily going to sell them a bunch of cat food tomorrow but it creates this idea of a brand that cares about the natural resources that it's also using in order to make its product. So I wouldn't say that's a risky idea, it's a good one. but it's a good one. And it's, and it's one that is kind of, um, you know, uh, speaks to like making a big investment in something without necessarily seeing the next day, uh, a sales response or a sales lift. Right. So there's a lot of tension in advertising. Long, long term play. Yeah, there's a lot of tension in advertising between short-term like sales gain and and long-term brand building. Like the the benefit of building a brand over time is that you can charge more, right? Is that people will pay more and and want to be affiliated with your brand rather than if your brand is just on sale all the time. You right. know, I, I, in the restaurant business, there are some brands that can command certain menu prices, and others that go out of business because they charge the price but they don't deliver. On, on what they're charging, right? So right. it's, it's kind of like that. 
Um, yeah, the, the risk thing is, I think it, I find it pretty interesting just because in food you take risks all the time. It's a different type of risk, right? It's like whether people will feed into it, but like, um, or they're willing to take that jump to try something that they've never tried or whatever it is. I just feel like in advertising, you know, the, the wrong risk could get you canceled in like a heartbeat. Oh, absolutely. Because it's everything is like you said, it's like clickbait, social media, whatever it is. And it's like, if there's not proper thought behind the risk, I mean, it gets you fucked long term, no? Yeah. I mean, you know, people get shit canned all the time. I, I have this, uh, you know, rule of thumb. I posted a snarky thing on, on LinkedIn once, and but I keep referring back to it because I think it's true. If you ask the average agency person what their goal is, it's to win a lion at can, right? And if you ask the average agency, I mean, a client person, what their goal is, uh, their goal is to send their kids to college. Right. And that's a different goal. Like, I want to be famous in my craft, and I want people to be recognized by my peers, and I want to do this noteworthy advertising that makes people take notice and the other guy wants to keep his head low and keep his job and keep his 401k and you know put his kids through through college and so those goals a lot of times don't align which is why when you have a figure like a fernando machado that people gravitate toward him everybody wants to work on the burger king everybody's got ideas for burger king you know which kind of takes me back to that meeting so we're sitting in the you know it's me yvonne and pablo from the agency and we're sitting with my contact, my Belen guy, and Fernando Machado, you know, the most sought-after CMO in America. And um, we're presenting, and the whole time we're presenting, I think we're bombing, like, because he's just sitting there poker-faced, impassive the whole time. And, uh, and at the end, when we're done, he's like, you done? And we're like, yeah. I thought he was just going to get up and leave. And he starts, he cracks a big smile and says, you guys... You guys did the typical agency presentation. You presented the easy to approve idea first. Then you presented the idea you really wanted to sell second. And the third one was a shoot for the moon idea. Literally, in this case, I think the third idea was like we were going to use a SpaceX rocket to cook a Whopper. Oh, that's cool. I'm, I'm game for that. Do you need someone to flip the burger? Because I'm down. He's like, he's like uh, you guys literally chose the shoot, the, shoot for the moon idea of third which is never going to happen in a million but he gave us some good feedback he said look i'm not going to buy the first idea because of x y and z reasons i'm not going to buy the third idea because of x y and z but the second idea it's out there it's in the ether people talk about bringing the whopper and and mcdonald's fries together and burger king also has had a long history of trolling mcdonald's in their advertising which is another reason i knew that this idea kind of had some legs to it was that they would buy it because you know, McDonald's doesn't even acknowledge the competition. I worked on that brand for five years. Like, they don't want you to believe that any competition exists. They won't acknowledge it. But Burger King, like, has done a good job strategically trolling McDonald's over there. I mean, they're much more fun of a brand. Exactly. I mean, the gentleman dressed as a king, you know, running around doing his thing is quite entertaining. In fact, you know, one of the things that I admire about Machado was... There was a period of time in Burger King advertising in the 2000s where they were doing a lot of good stuff. And they had a, actually a local agency from Miami called Crispin Porter and Bogusky that later moved to Boulder, Colorado. But um, it was a local agency from Miami that was working on the Burger King business. And they did a lot of award-winning stuff with Burger King. And when Machado came in after a gap of about four or five years from that period of time, 
he sought to recapture some of that magic and even brought back the king that had initially been, that king character was actually created by Christopher Porter and Bogusky. And so I admire a CMO that's willing to go back to things that worked because right. I think our, our business is one where there's, there's always like, oh, we got to change, we got to change, we got to change. And sometimes things that work, why would, like Burger King has owned Have It Your Way forever. And they've gone away from it a million times and they always go back to it. Why? Because that's what people know you for. And it's not a bad thing to know you for, right? Mm. Um, you know, it meant in the beginning that you could get it, hold the pickles, et cetera. But now it means about a lifestyle, you know, have it your way, have it the way you want it, like, which is kind of like what people want. So, um, and which what kind of made this forbidden combo idea, you know, it was a, the ultimate have it your way. It's like having it your way is the Burger King Whopper with the McDonald's fries. Um, so that, that's one of the things I admire is when a marketer's w willing to go back to the history books and say, this worked, why don't we go back and, and, and try that well, again? Well, I think there's a lot of, uh, I, there's a lot of importance to appreciating the things that back in the day worked and then just putting like a small spin on them or mm -hmm. just like showing, showing them love and then just changing them just enough to make them modern. I oh. think, I mean, food is a lot like that, so. Our, our industry is horrible in that sense. Like we, we have the shortest memories. We're always reinventing the wheel. Um, and, and, you know, I think that, again, that's one of the things that kind of separated Burger King during that period that my child, he's not there anymore. He's actually at Activision Blizzard now. He's in the video game uh, oh, industry. Really? Um, but I think that's one of the things that set Burger King apart was a willingness to do new and exciting things, but also embracing certain things from the past and the, the history of the brand. I'm a big history nerd, so I've always, I've always enjoyed that part of advertising is like to go back and find out what are the roots of this brand because consumers have kind of what I call an impressionistic view of brands. Like I think marketers get really myopic. Like we're, we microanalyze all the things we put in front of consumers, assuming that consumers are going to notice every detail. And the truth is, they kind of have an impressionistic painting of your brand and what it's about. Like, so you might have an impressionistic painting of McDonald's is more like a family place. Burger King is more, a little more outrageous, a little more out there. And so I think we take ourselves way too seriously in this business. And we, and we certainly are, are afraid to do things that other people came up with. Like we always want to be the ones that, Oh, we put, you know, we created this and forget about everything that came before. And I think that's a mistake in, in a lot of cases. I mean, I think the world does take itself a little too seriously in general. Now, I mean, there's not just like a lot of instances that people are willing to like roll the dice mm -hmm. and just say, fuck it. You mm -hmm. know, it's not like a thing that we see majority of time in today's world. So go back to like the day that you guys actually like won the thing. Okay. So real quick at the pitch meeting, Machado, at the end, he says, I really like this idea. And the thing that you guys brought to the table was a way to execute it through a delivery partner. He's like, but here's the thing. We're very loyal to our agencies, and you're not one of our roster agencies. But you mentioned that you're part of WPP. So our agency in 2017 was acquired by WPP, which is there are about five big advertising holding companies in the world. And WPP, my employer, is the largest of them. And, and he said, you guys mentioned your WPP. Our agency, David, is WPP also. So what I'm going to ask you to do is work with them to make this happen. And so we immediately contacted the folks at David. To their credit, they recognized it was a good idea. 
um, we put together a presentation to a U.S.-based delivery partner to pitch them the idea of, of, of the forbidden combo. And they said, we're not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. We're not going to, we don't want to mess, we don't want to piss off McDonald's. And so the idea was kind of stalled out for a little while, but uh, David has a very strong presence in Brazil. Um, in Sao Paulo, they had, uh, they had relationships with a delivery service called Rappi. And so Rappi is kind of like what Uber Eats is today. Like now Uber Eats, you can get other stuff delivered, not just food, right? right. That's their current campaign. Um, but so Rappi is this delivery service in Brazil and uh, David approached them about doing this forbidden combo. And by that time, they had changed the name to Impossible Combo. And, um, and Rappi was having problems with McDonald's. So they said, yeah, we'll, we'll fuck with McDonald's. <laughs> so they were all in. And so that's how the idea got executed. It got executed last June uh, in Sao Paulo, in, in Brazil. Um, you know, Brazil's a big market. Uh, and again, these are... This type of idea is it's really a stunt in a way, but it's a stunt that generates a lot of press, a lot of social media. Yeah. And so um, they, they took they, they, they unveiled this, you know, on Twitter, the, the impossible combo. People started ordering it. The thing sold out immediately. Uh, Burger King changed some of their signs. You know, it says Burger King, home of the Whopper. They changed the home of the Whopper to say not Potato King. So it said Burger King, not Potato King. And so... Fast forward to this year, it's the award festival season, right? So like everything that was done in 2021 and early 2022, you start submitting to the awards festivals and there's a whole process of writing case studies, doing videos, all this stuff. And you, you submit them to the different awards. And David, uh, which is a highly awarded agency, um, they have a lot of experience in this. So at that point, we kind of took a back seat in terms of like doing the case study video and all that. And we, we were entered in a, a bunch of different awards, including the One Show, which is a big U.S.-based, New York-based uh, creative festival. And arguably, it's for some people, you know, harder to get than a Can Lion. And we were fortunate enough to win a gold pencil and a silver pencil at the One Show. So we knew going into Can, we, we had a good chance. Um, and there's a whole strategy about which categories you enter and... I, I, I don't want to, the award is really huge for us. And like your Michelin star is huge. I mean, it, it kind of makes or breaks your career in, in a way. Like you feel like you've accomplished something and nobody can take away from you. It's vindicating. Yes, absolutely. But I don't want people to think that advertising is just about winning awards. But you work in an industry, you want to be recognized by your peers. For sure. You want to, you want, and it also, in our industry, it helps you attract talent, right? Like if talent believes that they're working at an award-winning shop where they can be recognized, you, yeah. it's, it, it only helps to build momentum. And, and I, I mentioned that we were acquired by WPP. So after, you know, 45 years of being an independent agency, we were acquired by WPP. After several, our founder died in 2012, or in 2007, and the agency had started to decline, and there was like a collapse in morale, and then we were acquired, and then that that brings on, you know, suddenly the culture changes. You're now part of the biggest advertising company in the world, and so, you know, I came in, and part of the plan among myself and the other senior leadership at the agency was how do we revive this great brand? You know, this brand, our founders in the Hall of Fame, 
and all this. And, and one of the things that one of the targets that we had was to win a lion at Cannes. So um, that's that's basically where the so I just don't want people to get it twisted and think that it's all about winning awards. I mean, well, I mean, I, I think also like the the award thing because you know I've said it forever. Like I don't I don't cook to win awards, but I think you have to strive for a goal, right? Like, and your goal can be obviously roof over your head, food on the table, that kind of stuff. But like when you're a competitor, like you want to win, like you want to, and not only that, you want to motivate your team to get to a place. It's not just, yeah, we want to cook the best food in the city, but like, so who dictates that, you know? And there needs to be like some kind of, some kind of thing to help you push that thing along, right? Because, like, it's different. When I played football, like, yeah, you know, you line up against another team, and the score at the end of the day dictates who wins. But in this game, as time goes on and as you get older, like, what motivates you? I think it's different for everyone. Like, obviously, honest, wholesome life is one thing, but also as you get older, like, you want to strive for something else, and that's kind of like what I found for me and, and our team is like, you know, how do we put ourselves like this very small, tiny restaurant in the corner of the Grove on the worldwide, like, kind of like visibility. And the star was one of those things. So <clears throat> for me, I mean, I've been cooking for 17 years. Like I never thought that we would like the, that kind of like the chips would fall that way. So when they did... And then, I, you know, like for us, and I don't know if it was similar for you guys, it probably was similar in different, in different ways, but like for us, the way that it all kind of like, all the chips kind of fell at one time, like pressure here was super hard. Um, anxiety and like, I mean, people were working hard. And the only thing that changed the day that we want to start was relief. Mm -hmm. You know, like we, we did a thing, we set out to do a thing. We always wondered if we were good enough to do the thing, and we did the thing. And I think that's really where where matters like um, the reason why I did dinners in other places that had stars was because I wanted to know is everything that we talk about is it is it on that level? And then when we did those dinners, I was like, yeah, we're on that level. We we are that level, you know. So when you know the whole Michelin thing was announced here, it was like I mean it was an intense time. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm I'm sure it's similar for you guys because like the way it sounds that there's much more planning and like uh, uh, just like submission is like a thing. Yes, like the way you submit things is yeah. like a thing for us. We were just like we just had to be. Yeah, we just had to be whoever we were, and like hopefully they think this is which like, is in a way a lot more stressful because you got to be on all the time, right? right? You don't know when somebody's gonna walk in who's taking notes and and you know. The, you know, sending that email back to the home office about, right. you know, what... We're not, like, submitting a dish and be like, this is a Michelin star dish. Yeah. All 26 dishes need to be Michelin yeah. star dishes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was stressful, but I, th I, th I think it's a really, like, it's a good growing experience. But, but I think the analogy or the, the parallel works because, you know, for you and your staff, they, they're always going to be have been part of a Michelin star uh, restaurant Correct. so that immediately changes their career trajectory it well, changes that, your career trajectory because like it or not 
that says something that says I've accomplished this. And so it opens up new possibilities for you. And that was the reason we were chasing the lion in the first place was well, that, to open that, up new possibilities for the agency and for the people at the agency. But that's why I asked, like, how big is the team that did this? Because it, it's, you know, it takes a village, right? Yeah. Like it takes like a, it's a group of humans that are working towards a goal that not everyone is built to go through that kind of grind every single fucking day. They're like, it's just not realistic, you know? So it's always a question for me. Like, how big is your team? What does the team do? Who are they? How are they all involved? I mean, it's very interesting to hear because I don't know anything about your world, right? So it's interesting to hear like the layers that it takes. So tell me how you find the similarities and the parallels between the two. So, and what I mean is obviously advertising the restaurant business. So I think number one is, when you start out young and you come in at the entry level, um, it's a lot of long hours, very low pay. You get overworked, overstressed. I think both industries have evolved in the sense I, both industries are very harsh, particularly on young employees. Um, back in the day, I think starting to change. I, I've seen a lot of your episodes where you talk about kind of the change in mindset, like the, that, the, the shit about like the chefs yelling at everybody all yeah. the time that, that, doesn't fly anymore it's like a different workforce now the expectations of people are different it's still but it's still a grind right it's still tough it's still thankless hard long hours and then um i think also that it's subjective right like you said like a football game isn't subjective you either win or you don't you beat them on the line and you you know maybe there's a bad call here or there but generally the best team wins right in sports and 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 the cream rises to the top um in in our industry, a lot of it can be, you know, what one person's fantastic meal could be somebody else's. Eh, eh, right, man, right. Man, I didn't I didn't think it was that that great. And so I, I think the same is is true of advertising. You're kind of it's a judge sport. It's not a it's not a you know a, a point scoring sport. Right. Um. And so in, in that sense, but um, you know, I I I think there's also obviously creativity is is uh, for sure. Is, uh, is a parallel, you know, you're, you're looking to do new things by, you know, in this particular case, just like with, with, with cuisine, right? Like a lot of times you, it's not that you're inventing new ingredients necessarily. You're finding new ways to combine things and prepare things that there's a lot of variables that you could change. And in the case of our idea, as, as Fernando Machado said, you know, our idea wasn't new. The idea of, I want to have, the, when I was at can. Um, I ran into a creative director who I worked with for five years at an agency here in the Grove. And um, I told him about our, you know, about our idea. And he's like, that's what I used to do in college in Gainesville. I used to go to the Burger King, get a Whopper and go across the street in McDonald's and get the fries. So this is like a true consumer insight, a thing that people wanted or, or did. And that's kind of what made the idea powerful. I mean, who would care if like nobody cared, but I think people kind of acknowledge the truth in it, which is if I could if I could pick the best of these two mortal enemies, I, I would take this burger and, and these fries and, and put them together. So, you know, we didn't take any we didn't create anything new. We just arranged them in a way with a food delivery phenomenon that was happening and suddenly it was possible. And and so things that maybe weren't possible before are now possible. And I think some of that is true in, in your line of business where you're looking at things in a way that nobody's ever looked at them before and say, you know what, this might actually go with this. And I'm sure that in a lot of cases, 
doesn't work, right? You try things and then well, yeah, work. I mean for sure. Like you know, uh, that's why I, I'm fascinated by the idea of risk and advertising because for us, you know, since day one, and I was just talking to one of my uh, one of my cooks that's now a chef here that's been here for five and a half years is like, you know, we've been taking risks for a long time and we've been unapologetic in them. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of weight behind that because the more you own that ideology, the more that that's just who you are, Mm -hmm. you know, and once you own it and that's what you're known for and that's who you are, then just people know you to be that. And I think that's a lot of the weight behind that is huge because you know, when people come here to eat, like they just know um, there's no bells and whistles, but the flavor combinations are unapologetic. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're just like, we think that this goes together. We want you to try this, give it a shot. And if you don't like it, then we're sorry. Yeah. But usually they knock pretty well. At the at the same time, I think they're calculated risks, right? Like you, you're, you're putting your best foot forward, right? But also, you know, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I'm more of a Nave guy and a Chugs guy, That's right? Cool. And a Taurus guy than I yeah. am an Ariette guy. I'm not a fancy eater, you yeah, know? And cool. so I look at menu descriptions on the Ariette menu and I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Oof, no. Like, <laughs> like I said, there's always an ingredient there that makes me kind of shudder and wince. But I love Nave and, right. and I love Chugs. Um, so... Um, Me too. But, but you have a base. <laughs> you have a base from which you can take risks, right? Because right. you you have an existing clientele. You have a brand. You have a, a, an operation that's viable. And so now you can really stretch your wings. Now you have a Michelin star, which even gives you a little bit more capital to stretch your wings and and take risks that maybe you couldn't take the first year of the restaurant. Well, right? it's uh, yeah. I've had this conversation several times in the last couple of weeks. Is like, you know, people have asked me is like from the day you opened to now. What's different? I was like, well, the day that we opened, nobody knew who the fuck I was or who we are. So I had to gain people's trust and that takes time. And it and it's it's a relentless attempt to like get them to be like, Hey, you know, you come in for the burrata salad, but just like try the foie, give it a shot, let me know. You know, like it's a lot of that and then after a while, once you gain that trust and you, you work through all those things Maybe you can stop giving them that because they already know that this is good. So now this is your baseline. And then you work towards another thing. And then you work towards another thing. A lot of people want to come out the gate and just say, fuck it. You're not just throwing darts at the wall with a blindfold on. Calculated risk is huge. You know, like when we talk about putting a, a, a dish on the menu, like right now we're changing both fish setups. And it's like one is a little more like wholesome, old school, like very straightforward for the season. And the other one is a little more thought provoking. And that's okay. You have two options to do that. You have someone that's like more of a fundamentally sound diner. And then you have a diner that's a little more adventurous. And that's okay to do that. So just fuck it. Just let it ride. But it's all calculated risk, right? Like it takes time. Like there's several times. Plus, I'm, I'm sure there are things that you'd like to do. But in practice, they're not feasible. Like, you know, the operationally it's going to disrupt the kitchen too much. Like that's one of the, you know, obviously I'm not comparing the fast food clients that I worked with, with the kind of food that you put on the table, but we learned that in the, in the industry, you know, it's like, yeah, it's great for McDonald's to offer breakfast all day, but operationally that's a disruption, right? Because the equipment that's in the restaurant that can only be used for certain things unless it gets cleaned and, and all those kind of things that 
consumers don't think about it. Right. And that's another one of the, the parallels I think about. I was thinking about between the restaurant business and the ad businesses. Everybody comes into contact with advertising. Everybody comes into contact with restaurant food. Everybody thinks they know what goes on. Right. But they don't really know what well, goes on. Well, it's my on. favorite question. It's like, why don't you just do this? I'm like, well, because we can't. Yeah. What do you mean you can't? It's like, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense, right? It, like, so the three chefs that I have running this restaurant, like very close to all three of them. And I'll, you know, just have this weird fucking idea and we'll, I'll just like roll it out and be like, you know, what do we think about this? And then the, the gentleman that you met, chef Manny, he'll be like, you're fucking nuts. And I'm like, but what do you mean? He's like, we just, we can't fucking do that. And then he'll break it down. And I'm like, yeah, you know, we also worked like the same life, right? I worked that line for five and a half years. Now he's worked it for two. And like, I know what he knows and vice versa. So I know that it's a little out there and I know it's a little too much. And if we're trying to keep everything efficient, consistent across the board, it's not going to make sense. But sometimes those ideas come back later on and there's, 100%. An, there's an opportunity, right? Like in a new restaurant concept, it might be the right thing or... Um, you get a new piece of equipment or a new piece of real estate that you can expand the kitchen and you can do it. And something now that was previously impossible is, is now possible. Well, you know, like, he, it, but it's also part of leadership and part of like change to be able to push people around you to do more than what they think that they're capable of doing. So it was like, I don't know, eight months ago, I was like, you know, we're going to, we're going to do a tasting every night. And he was like, no. And I'm like, yes. Oh yeah. This is going to happen. He's like, oh, but you know this, that, and the next. I'm like, just stop looking at the blockades in front of you. Now, just think smarter than the situation. And now, today, as we sit here, we have an a la carte menu that's smaller, and we have two tasting menus side by side. Not just one. We have two. And it's like, I think people, when it comes to risk, will always say no first until you give them the full breakdown of, like, how and why it should work. Give them the easy, like, just get them in there first and then bring the full force after. And that's why we you know we started with a classic tasting menu, which, which was just the classic dishes we've had for years. And then after that, I was like, all right, let's fucking put the stamp on this motherfucker. Like let's do a modern, which is the shit that we're working on and let's not give a fuck, be unapologetic. And you know, me as the owner, I tell them all the time, like if people don't buy it, fuck it. I'm the one that's making the call. Mm -hmm. And then there's some days that we'll go through here and you know we'll sell we'll do 60 covers we'll sell 40 tastings and we'll sell 30 moderns and 10 classics and that's cool but it, you have to push people to get there mm -hmm. and I think a lot of that like advertising I feel like is somewhat similar in the pat in the fact of like you're pushing someone to understand something they maybe didn't understand before you know there's a lot of you know in our case because we we have a client ultimately whose brand we're entrusted with right mm -hmm. like it's not our brand right like in the case of burger king it wasn't our brand it's it was fernando machado's brand and and jose sills brand jose is what is the ceo of rbi the parent company um so they, they're entrusting us with that and so there's a good amount of selling that has to go in why you should do this why it makes sense how we can do it what you but know e even more so like um the other weird dichotomy is like the relationship between the back of the house and the front of the house, right? Like the front of the house essentially is the salesman for what we do. So they're entrusted with the opportunity of like selling 
the two tastings, selling the wine pairing, selling all these things. Like they are the salesman. Behind but they have it. to believe because if they, they don't have believe, to believe it, if they don't believe in in one of the tasting menus, they're not going to sell it hard, right? Right. And if they're not selling it hard, it's not going to sell. And it's it's really the same way in, in advertising. You know, there's a unfortunately in advertising a lot of agencies there's a big schism between the creative department yeah sure um there's there's a a big you know division between the client facing account department and the creative department the creative department wants to do all these crazy things and they feel the account department's way too conservative they shoot down ideas and depending on the dna of the agency some you know, just like restaurants, that's another parallel. I think some restaurants are chef-led, right? And others are more like corporate and more, you know, like it's more of a business than chef-led. And so advertising is like that. They're either creative-led or they're they're business-led. And so when I talked about like Zuby and us changing a little bit over the last four or five years, so, you know, trying to bring a little more balance to the creative, you know, bring creative up to the level of our account service, which is fantastic and phenomenal, but really um, doing stuff that, that gets noticed and, and that will win that acclaim of our peers, which was what this whole, you know, Ken Lion thing was about. So once you won. Yeah. So let me tell you about the experience because it was really cool. I had never been 26 years in advertising. I'd never been to Ken. I had only heard about it. And of course, the last two years, there was no festival because of COVID. Right. So this was the first year back. And um, I had a feeling that we had a good chance. We were submitted in 13 different categories. Um, I, I took some time off from work on my own time. And I flew there and I got the company to agree to pay for my credentials to the festival, which are pretty hefty, you know, in the kind of economic times that we're living in. Um, and so I, I flew to Barcelona. I, I went the cheapest way possible. I flew to Barcelona. I rented a car. I drove from Barcelona to a town right next to Cannes, um, where I had an Airbnb super cheap. Like I was doing everything on, on the cheap. Um, and so I, I get there. And the first thing I do is I lose my passport, which <laughs> sucked, sucked totally because the whole festival I'm there, I'm thinking about how the fuck am I going to get back? Um, eventually the way I got back was I had to get up one of the mornings early and go to Marseille where there's a U.S. consulate and shell out 165 bucks and get a, a temporary passport. And it was, a, it was a big hassle, but on the way back from Mars. So on the, we, you find out while you're at Cannes, which categories you're shortlisted in, if any, and then 48 hours after that is the awards presentation for those categories. So there's awards presentation. What a shitty 48 hours. Yeah, there's 48. There's five award presentations Monday through Friday, and it all culminates Friday night where they the last award they give is the Grand Prix in film, which is TV spots basically, um, which tells you you know all the talk about social media and digital and all that. Still, the most coveted award is the Grand Prix in film at, at Cannes. But, you know, you get your shortlist announced day by day and then each at 48 hours later, you you. So we found out we were shortlisted for brand activation on on Monday. We found out. So on Wednesday was going to be the award. And I thought that was our best category. I thought that was our best chance. So Wednesday, I went to the award show. 
And I didn't really know how it worked. I had heard that if you want a gold, you would know in advance that you want it um, to give people an opportunity to come from wherever they were to, to receive it if they weren't at, at, at the festival. Um, so I knew we hadn't won a gold. And then the, the award show Wednesday night passed and we didn't win. And I was really down on myself. I was like, shit, man. Like that was our best chance was this brand activation category. And walk- that, that self-doubt moment sucks. Yeah, it sucks. I was walking to the rental car. I parked in a garage and uh, I walked by a tattoo parlor and I said, if we win in the, one of the remaining two categories, I'm going to get the lion tattoo. And so I made a promise to myself right there. And, and so um, I knew that we weren't, it, it was the next night we were going to find out. I think it was the Thursday night. Um, I think it was the Tuesday night was brand activation. The Thursday night was our other two categories. We were in direct, um, which is direct advertising to consumer and, and the media category. And um, so that was the Thursday. I, I had driven to Marseille, gotten up early in the morning to go get this chintzy temporary passport. And I'm driving back and my eyes are closing because I didn't sleep well the night before. And so I pull over in a rest area and I take like a power nap for like half an hour. And when Those I wake up the best, by the way, power naps for half an hour. Well, especially when you're driving, when you, when you, if you've ever had that feeling of you're in a car and you're falling asleep, it's, oh. it's dangerous. I mean, yeah, I, I've been there. I've been there. Uh, so I pull over and, and all you need is like 20 minutes and then you're alert again. And so I pull over, I take the power nap and I wake up and I open the phone and I see an email and the email says, we've won a silver lion and I just can't believe it. Like, I mean, I'm, you know, again, this is 26 years in the making, um, you know, and so I, I get on, I get on WhatsApp and I do a video call with, uh, with one of the creatives who was responsible, who I'd been having an ongoing, like back and forth, like, Oh, we didn't win last night. We're you know, so I call him, I said, did you hear the news? And he's like, no, what? I said, we want, we want a silver lion. And he starts jumping up and down. And I realize he's in the room, like he's in his apartment. They're, you know, working from home with one of the other creators. That was, and they, they're giving them, themselves a group hug, the two of them. And I'm, I'm literally in tears crying in the, in the car. And, um, you know, it was just like cloud nine from, from that moment on. And, you know, it's, it's, it was a, a phenomenal, phenomenal experience. Like you, the next day, so we want a silver. Only golds get to walk on stage and get the trophy, you know, which so we didn't get that. But, we're, you know, our name flashed up on the, the, the name of the idea, the name of the client. It flashed up on, this, on the screen. Um, it's, you know, it's a, it's a nice recognition. And like, like your Michelin star, nobody's ever going to take that away. That's why you, I think, committed it to ink like I did. Next day, 2 o'clock, I was getting the tattoo. So. Well, you know, it's interesting because the guy who did, like, when, when Ariad opened, we just had the name. We didn't have, like, a logo. So I got a tattoo of, like, what I thought represented Ariad. This is five and a half years ago, which is the hammer with all the orchids. And... um the same guy, John Vale, which is like a legendary Miami tattoo artist. I texted him a couple of weeks before and I said, listen, uh, I know you're busy and you have things that are important. But, you know, if we're up for like a certain thing, if this thing happens, I need you to make time for me. And he was like, bro, I got you. So you've got a little pull, I think. in the- I mean, no, but John's like a good dude. He's, he's a homie for sure. And... um and he was like, I got you for sure. So uh, 
it wasn't the day because it, it's the same thing, right? Like the the biggest issue I had with us winning was that I wasn't here, right? So I couldn't celebrate with my team, which was one of the hardest things that I, I experienced because you know uh, the team is the reason why the award exists. It's not just me. Like yeah, you know, years and years happened and and the struggle happened or whatever it was, but this team won that. And all the the people that are on this team currently can now carry that for the rest of their life. And and I love that so much. So the fact that I couldn't be here sucked. Well, it, same with me. I mean, I was over there. I was the only one from the agency that was there. And so it was it was really uh, it was really interesting. You know, I come back and I brought souvenirs for everybody and we haven't gotten together yet. You know, we, we literally haven't gotten together yet to celebrate this thing. Well, it's only been three weeks. Yeah. Well, we and we've. You know, we just haven't had been able to coordinate schedules because, you know, summertime people are going on vacations right. and stuff like that. And we want to do it when everybody that was responsible um, is, is there. But, yeah, I mean, it, it it was it was it was weird, you know, to be there by myself. Um, my boss sent me an email says you got to go out and have a big expensive dinner. So there's a hotel right on the Crossette, which is like the, the Malecon of Cannes. Um, it's called the Martinez Hotel, very upscale, very nice. They have like a patio restaurant. I went there, bought a bottle of rosé, champagne, and uh, and I, I was fortunate enough that I had a colleague of mine that I had worked with before. He came in and celebrated with me. He brought a... Casey also has a Michelin tattoo. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm telling you, the, the, the tattoo thing is like a, you know, it's almost like a, it signifies... You did a thing like it, you were part of a team that achieved this very like lofty goal that not many people can can get to. And I feel like there's so many people that like, you know, awards don't matter. And, and in essence, they don't. But at the same time, it's like they I'm, still fucking feel good, man. I, I mean, mean just... I, there's there's no doubt about that. Like, there's no doubt that for me, I mean, when I was a. 22 year old cook and I was like I really I, I this is this is like the this level that is unachievable fuck I want to be there especially you know yeah and as a you know one of your viewers I'm not in Salina Kansas we have viewers <laughs> um, this is crazy you know I you know, Miami wasn't the hotbed right like it wasn't you know oh. years ago right oh, and yeah. and so you're part of that wave that's putting Miami on the map in terms of, of cuisine. And that's got to mean, you know, to be in that first batch, right, is I, I, I would imagine even more of an honor. Um, well, you know, you're talking about like the anxiety that leads up to like the awards, right? right. And I, I'm pretty sure we talked about this previously, but just to make a long story short, when Michelin reached out a month previous I received two different emails, but none of which were addressed to Ariette. So I like I went and I was like, my anxiety was the fucking worst. I mean, I couldn't imagine living through a whole week of it. Like it was just two days for me and I was a fucking train wreck. So when we won, it was like very genuine. Like this uh, last time I won anything was... My last game in college winning, um, we shared a conference championship. We, we we didn't even win it outright. We just shared it, which still to this day, I have the ring. It's like, it's a big deal for me, the whole thing. But like, we won this fucking thing. 
Yep. You know, and, and it was. Um, now, now put yourself in the mindset of what if you hadn't won? Like, right, oh, I've, right. I've thought about that so many times. It's, it's, uh, well, I mean, I was prepared for that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, you got you got to prepare for the worst, right? Like, you got to prepare. Like, oh, well, maybe next year, maybe you know. And that was, you know, my mindset going into that Thursday night was like, you know, hope for the best, prepare for the worst, because you become emotionally vulnerable at a certain point, right? Like where you're, you say to yourself, it's not that important, but in your mind, you're like, God damn, it would be so well, great. Know, like, I never wanted anything professionally more in my life at that point. I'm, same. I'm, I'm sitting there in the epicenter of it all, you know, and the other thing we haven't really talked about is the atmosphere at Cannes during this week. Like I said, it had been two years since they had the festival. I mean, literally... The most important clients in the world are there. All of the big agencies in the world are there. I mean, in, on two occasions, I'm walking down the street and I see Mark Pritchard. Mark Pritchard is the CMO of Procter & Gamble. Okay. Like, he's basically the most important marketer in the world. So, like, imagine, like, the most important restaurateur in the world. Like, you just see him, like, he's standing on the street by himself, like, not talking to anybody. You feel like you should go up and say something and, and talk to him. But what the fuck are you going to say? Like, I was, I was a, honestly, like, I was the worst person to be around. I was absolutely fucked. Like, anyone who was there that day, Philip Franklin Lee, he was there. Andrew Falsetto was there. A couple other people. But I was, like, I was, a, I was the fucking worst. I had two headphones in. I was listening to Sade because it would calm me. That was the only thing that I would find that would calm me. And I was sitting by the back, the furthest back bar I could find by the front door, just slamming gin and tonics to the fucking, <sighs> for, to the face because they couldn't make a Negroni to save their life. So I was like, I was fucked because I had already been kicked out of the, the tent three times for vaping inside. <sighs> and I was like, and I was like, um, I just couldn't, and, and I didn't even this know. This is where, New York? No, it was in Orlando. Okay. It was in Orlando. And, and the, um. And they, they had set up chairs for us at the front. which It wasn't even indoors. It was in a tent and you couldn't vape. Right. Well, whatever. It, it doesn't even matter. But I was like, I was the absolute worst because it was like caviar brands that were trying to talk to me. And those other people were trying to talk to me. And I don't even really remember. But it was like I was a fucking train wreck. Because the other, th the other part is to you lose. Yeah. How do you at that point and all I thought about. The night before, weeks before, how do I motivate my team if we lose? How do I motivate them to do more, to to work harder, and we've worked this hard for so long, if we lose? And I'm like, as as the coach of this team, I'm a little bit at a loss, yeah. you know. And it and it was it, it was it was rough. In yeah. in our case, I had a little bit of a backstop because we had already won a gold pencil at the one show. Mm. Um, we were shortlisted at Cannes in three different categories. So we had achieved more than the agency had ever achieved before. So we, we had already gotten to a place um, um, where we were making history for our 50-year-old agency. Um, but certainly it would have been tough. You know, it would have been a tough ride back, you know, flying back from Barcelona, knowing that we came so close and, and didn't and didn't pull it off. Well, the thing for me also was like so many of these restaurant or food-driven awards are attached to a name, right? So like, you know, uh, I won Rising Star Chef for Star Chefs. I was nominated for a beard twice, even though like... It's not the restaurant, it's you. Apparently the James Beard Foundation does not appreciate Miami or Florida at all. So, you know, we had gotten snubbed in that category 
Um, but it was attached to my name, and I did not like that, and I did not want that because it takes it takes the whole team to make it work. You know, like it's cool, like yeah, whatever. You know, get nominated for a thing or win a thing, but like I wanted the whole team to win. Yeah, because this whole team is really so many people here have fought through from COVID to now. So in that vein, let me mention some names real quick because I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention Jorge Jacome, uh, Oliver Emig, uh, Francisco Lozada, and Luis Pipe Nunez. They're the four creatives that came up with this idea. I mentioned Ivan Calle. He's our executive creative director. And Pablo Miro, our VP of growth. Um, I think the seven of us... Um, together were really that core team that that made this thing happen. Our companions at David in Sao Paulo, uh, Pancho Casis, who's the chief creative of David internationally, um, you know, guided us through the whole award submission part of it and and really took it upon themselves to do that. Um, in the spirit of you know the team game, I I wanted to recognize those people because it's not about me i mean i i feel really lucky that i was able to contribute in a way more than usually a strategist gets to contribute um but i think things just lined up for us I, it was you know i one thing is to have a connection and to get a meeting and it's another thing to get in front of the most sought after marketer in the world and sell them an idea and then have it come to life by the way that was October of 2019, Oof. and the idea got executed in June of 2021, so, oh, yeah. so almost two years, and we win the recognition a year later. And by the way, it, there's some luck involved, too, because uh, the last day of the festival, I'm in line to walk into the award ceremony, and it's, like I said, the last night is the big night. And I'm in line. I hear some guys talking Spanish behind me. And I work at a Hispanic agency. And there's since I'm there by myself, I'm always looking like for who can I glom onto their conversation. And these guys, and they're from Chile. And they're from an agency called 1984. And uh, I think one of them noticed the, the tattoo because I was wearing shorts. Because Cannes is like old Europe. Like even the buildings that are air conditioned inside, they're like 80 degrees inside. <laughs> like it's horrible. <laughs> And, and so, like, everybody's wearing shorts, and they saw the lion tattoo, and they're like, hey, nice lion tattoo is a new, because, you know, you know when a new tattoo, you could tell. Yeah, and, super clean. Yeah, and, you know, still got, like, you know, the neosporin on it, yeah, you know. Right. <laughs> and uh, and I say, yeah, we, you know, we won our first lion last night, um, and uh, I got the tattoo today. And like, oh, what was your idea? I said, oh, the, the impossible combo for Burger King. And the guy stated to me, he goes, are you from David? And I'm like, no, we're from Zuby. We came up with the idea. David executed it. And then <laughs> he kind of stayed there, like, you know, and then we kept talking a little while, you know, casual conversation. And then two of the guys that he was with mentioned that they needed to go to Barcelona because they were flying out of Barcelona. I said, hey, I have a rental car. And after tonight's award show, I got a six-hour drive to Barcelona if you guys want to hitch a ride. And they're like, oh, it would have been great, but we already got train tickets. And that's when the, the first guy says, you know what? This is too much of a coincidence. You know, these guys need to go to Barcelona. You're here in front of us on the line. He's like, you know that in February of this year, for our client Heinz, we did something for Valentine's Day where we were bringing impossible lovers together. And it was the... Burgers from Burger King and McDonald's fries with Heinz ketchup. 
He's like, and we did a delivery thing. He's like, we didn't, we didn't know that this thing had happened in Brazil. And the creative director from David called me up because he's a friend of mine to say, Hey, don't, don't submit that to the award shows because we, we did the same idea in June of last year. So we, like I said, it was in the ether. This idea was kind of out there to be had and we just got to it first. And it was a matter of seven months, literally. Um, otherwise it would have been them winning the lion and us kind of going home, you know, with, with empty handed. Well, so first to market always wins. Yeah. First to market always wins. I mean, I don't know. I, I think the idea of like, uh, uh, people in today's world want to just be told that like, you know, everyone's doing a good job and like, um, there's no weight behind like striving for more. And I think it's important to say like, you should strive for more. It's okay to strive for more. It also, it gives you re-energizes. I, I, I gotta believe you came back and you're like, now you're like, you're going to fucking run through walls. I mean, we all face like the, God, you know, it's like the grind and, you know, and, and to tell you the truth, the, the pandemic was tough for me um, because um, when we first started working from home, you know, I found pretty early on that I go stir crazy if I, if I can't leave the house. So I started going to the office, even though nobody was there, because I, I lived only five blocks from the office. My wife, she basically took over the den in our little place. So I was working, if I was working at home, I'd be working in our bedroom and it's kind of sucks to be in those four walls, you know, yeah. all day and all night. And, and so I was going to the office a lot. And then in November, I couldn't go to the office anymore because they passed this vaccine policy. And I decided I, and it's not that I'm anti-vax in the beginning. I just decided I want to wait and see. And the more that I saw, the more I said, you know what? It's okay. I, I got COVID in October of last year. I'm like, after I got COVID, why was I even going to bother? So they took away my, I was one of the few people that was using the office. And now I was, so like the months before going to Cannes, I was really demotivated. I, I, I was lingering on the edge of depression. And, you know, I went to Cannes, I came back with all this energy and, you know, I decided, fuck it. I like, I, I got a, you know, I went to WeWork and I got a membership at WeWork and now I go, I go there. That's my office. I, you know, I don't, I can leave the confines of my house and go to, and you know, work from home is great for some people, but for other, for me, it doesn't work. Oh, like it doesn't work for me either. It, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. And so, but the point is, can re-energize me. Like, you know, like I said, 26 years in a business that's a grind and you start thinking, you know, what the hell am I doing? Um, you know, it is a fun business. It certainly beats real work, you know, um, advertising. It's not real work. I mean, we, we work in the pop culture, we work in, you know, things that are entertainment related. And so, um, you know, I, 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 I got re-energized by this experience. And well, I, th I think for me, like the, the one thing that the star gave us was like, you know, a lot of people doubted our ideology and like we're old school hospitality driven across the company and area specific is like very old school in its nature. And it's like, everyone's like, well, that's not going to work. And that's not going to work. And, and I was like, what that gave me was the opportunity to say, well, like, well, it fucking worked. Yeah. So I'm going to fucking ride with this. Yep. And to like really stand on my own two feet and say like, okay, 
as much as people may have doubted our thoughts and we stood strong through all of them, it just, it, it does re-energize like you're <coughs> internally like, fuck it, like just ride, you know? And I would say like during COVID, because I'm not like a work from home person either, COVID gave me and us an opportunity to like reassess what that restaurant really meant. And I think like when we reopened, we reopened as a different restaurant with a different goal and the people accepted and they were cool with it. And the more like days went on and the more we pushed, the more I was like, you know, like we're just going to fucking push harder. So the star really gave us that opportunity to say, okay, pushing harder worked. So keep pushing. Yep. Don't ever stop. Yeah. Don't ever stop pushing. Yeah, well, yeah. now you prove that you can be done. And that's right. the kind of, you know, the feeling at, at Zuby where I'm at is, is, is that. There's also an element for me personally, you know, of personal growth. You know, at 52, it's my age. Um, you know, in my late 40s, I, I joined Zuby in, in 2018. You know, the funny story was right before I joined the agency, I went to go visit my stepdaughter with my wife. Uh, we, she was doing a semester abroad in, in Paris. And so we went to visit her and we took a road trip and we went all the way to the south of France. We went to Marseille, we went to Cannes. And I bought a postcard in, in Cannes because I was about to start at Zuby. Like I was literally gonna start on the Monday after we got back. And so I bought this postcard and it was basically to give it to my creative director and tell him, hey, this is where we're, we're, we're going to Cannes. And, um, and for me, it was a journey of personal growth because even in my late age, I, you can learn things. And so I'm going to, I'm going to open up about something about me, which was, I had had opportunities before and I had squandered them. I had been at an agency that now today is in, you know, the Hispanic advertising industry is like one of the top agencies. And I was very headstrong, very stubborn. I had anger issues and when I when I joined Zuby, I started like being more introspective, and the real breakthrough for me came on a research project. I went to uh, California and Texas to meet with pickup truck owners for our, our Ford client, and we were doing these one on one interviews in people's homes. And this one guy opens up about like all these issues that he faced, and that he had an anger problem, and he resolved them through anger management, and so. I got home to Miami. I, I didn't think anything of it at the time. And when he, uh, when I'm editing the, the video of like, cause you, you do this research and you do like a highlight reel for the clients about what you learned in the research. Every time that I kept looking at this edit of the, of the video where he's talking about his anger management experience, I'm the one that asked him, well, did it work? And he says, oh yeah, it worked. It changed my life. And like about the third or fourth time that I saw that clip where he says he's taking anger management and I asked him if it worked, I realized the jackass, the universe is sending you a message. You have an anger problem. And this is what has prevented you from achieving the things in your career that you could have achieved and that your colleagues at your old agency are achieving. And that was like a moment for me, like where I, my eyes went wide open and I I enrolled in an anger man, like looked for it online, enrolled in it, and and it really changed the quality of my life. And 
I would have never told you I had an anger problem because you're in denial about it. And that was an issue with me. I, I think I was always smart. I think people always appreciated what I brought to the agency, but I brought so much baggage because of the anger. Um, when I would get frustrated, I would, you know, and so that, that, you know, this whole thing of like, it's a redemption story. Like Zuby is this agency, this great agency with a founder that's in the hall of fame, you know, trying to redeem it and, and bring it back to the stature it once was myself, you know, somebody who, who reached a certain point in his career and kind of stalled out. And now, you know, I'm achieving the things that, that I thought had, you know, honestly become impossible for me. So, well, I mean, I think like accepting who you are and like the things that are wrong is 90% of the battle, right? You know, like I, I've also in, in, and I still struggle from it like super hard is the things that I'm bad at, which are like being incredibly aggressive towards certain things in the kitchen is like understanding like you're bad at this. Take a step back, take a deep breath, understand like understand more about like the person that's doing the thing and like how you can get them better to not fuck this up again, mm -hmm. you know? And I think accepting the fact that you have to grow from that is so huge. Like, it's such a big part of the battle. Self-awareness is a gift that not a lot of people have. Fuck and, me. And, and, no, they don't. And it took me, and it took me, you know, honestly, you know, 48 years to get there, you know. Um, and, and I'm not saying I'm perfect. But I recognize that I had this. Yeah, but who the fuck is perfect? Nobody's perfect. But I, the, I, Nobody's but, perfect, but man. I recognized I had this obstacle in front of me. And that it was what was, and and it was interesting because this anger management curriculum that I took, you know, when you, if you, if you like, if the court sends you to anger management, they either send you to twelve hours or twenty four hours. But when you Google anger management, you find out that like the twelve hour course costs the same as the twenty four hour course. Of course, if the court sends you to twelve hour, you're never going to do the twenty four hour. Right. But I was doing it electively, like nobody sent me. I was, so I did the 24 hour and the first 12 hours were okay, but it was in that second 12 hours, like the curriculum was completely different. It was, suddenly I realized, you know what? All of these problems are of your own making. Stop blaming other people. Take the responsibility on yourself. And that was for me a really breakthrough watershed moment um, that coincided with being in an environment, you know, I, I have to say, the environment at the current agency that I'm at is the best advertising agency environment I've ever been. That's another parallel, I think, with the restaurant business. There's a lot of fucking crazy people in the advertising business. There's a lot of people that make your life hell. And there are some environments that are more wholesome, more supportive, and, and better than others. And Zuby is the most supportive, wholesome environment that I've ever participated in. I've been six, eight agencies over my career. Yeah, I, I feel like the, you know... Um our good friend Miguel Massans keeps talking about like how people want to cancel fine dining restaurant culture. And I think a lot of it's like attached to the tough nature of like that thing. Right. And, you know, when people come to work here, like it's a very tough environment, but it's a very wholesome family related environment. Right. And it's because, people will hold you accountable and they will they will push you to be better but at the same time like they care about you as a human being and they'll talk to you and they'll learn about you and they'll 
want you to be better. And I think like there's so much in that like uh, that wholesomeness that it's still it's okay to push people, which in today's world, it's like everyone wants to say like pushing people is bad. It's not really bad. I think it's like you got to get the most out of people. Otherwise, you're not doing them a service as an employer. Like well, then, what, then, what the hell is your role then? Then they are stagnant. Yeah, exactly. They are stagnant as a human being, as an employee. And if like they really want to strive to be more, then you have to push them to be more. And it's always attached to this like negative connotation of like, okay, it's hard. Well, that sucks. But life is hard. Like it's not fucking easy, yeah, I, right? I, I think there is a happy medium between the old school way, mm-hmm. right? And then, and these, the soft new generation that doesn't want to face any adversity. And you got to kind of say, no, there is adversity. We don't have to treat it the same way that we did 20, 30 years ago. Right. But there is adversity. And sometimes life is going to suck. And sometimes this job is going to suck. Well, it, it's what I tell people all the time. is like, be a coach. Coach them through it. Yeah, it's hard. It's okay. It's okay that life is hard or the job is hard, and that's fine. But pull yourself out of that, learn from your mistakes, and then be better tomorrow. And I think like that, accepting the fact that it's fucking hard is this weird thing in today's world that it's like... Nobody wants to deal with pain anymore. And the truth is, you, you I, I wasn't uh, a gifted athlete, and, and nor... Amen, brother. Uh, Me well, neither. But, but, you, but you played at a... a at a certain level like you yep. played on organized teams like i was a swimmer it was more of an individual sport um and and even then you know i was just kind of like second tier but you know life is going to throw adversity at you and i think we do the youth a disservice when we kind of insulate them from that adversity i think right. there's a lot of parenting that goes on like insulate them from any adversity and the truth is life sucks you know sometimes you're going to run up against a wall the question is what do you do when you run up against that wall? Well, it, I tell people all the time, like, life doesn't give a fuck. Yeah. Like, it doesn't give a fuck. It's, it's, if it's hard today, it's going to be hard tomorrow. And if you want to shy away from the difficulty of it, then maybe a different career or a different thing is good for you. And people don't want to hear that shit. They want to hear, like, you know, the roses of the situation. And I think, like, functionally... Uh, People think that just by spewing like this bullshit of like roses, you know, of a situation is going to get them better and it's not going to get them better. So the alternative is to get a a job as a bureaucrat or some sort of, you know, mid-level functionary somewhere, nameless (laughs) face. Mid-level functionary is such a good term. (laughs) send, send, Send your kids to college, you know, get your 401k or whatever and live that life. Or there's this... Thing that you can reach for that Michelin yeah. star, that Ken Lion, that thing where the day you die, nobody's going to take that away from you. You came, you you set your mind to a goal, you achieve the goal. Nobody's ever going to take that away from you. And that to me is, you know, it, obviously there's this whole kind of humanistic kind of what are we here for? And the truth is, the only thing that we can do is influence the people around us. And hopefully when we die, people say good things about us. That's literally all that's left is that the people that for for a time after you die, people will say good things about you. And so, you know, I I'm a 
kind of an Adam Carolla follower, and he talks a lot about, uh, you know, don't chase happiness, chase satisfaction. Do the things, you know, you, you might be happy by buying something and you will be happy short term, but when you build something, satisfaction is a different feeling than happiness. Satisfaction gives you happiness. Yeah, but building takes time. Of and course. Pe- and people like with the building process, they don't totally understand like the build. You know, like the building takes so much time, mental effort, emotional effort, like all that shit. And it's <clears throat> this really interesting. I think thing. it's about fear because people, I think, are afraid to put in the effort and, and lose and lose and and say, yeah, but losing is okay. I know, but th- I think that's that's ultimately the thing. Is like people are like, how much of myself do I want to put into something and potentially lose? So they rather go the safe route. And you know, honestly, there's a percentage of the population that is always going to go the safe route. Yeah, and and, so, it, and 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 that's okay. And and that's another parallel I think between the industries. It's a self-selecting industry. It's not for everyone. Self-selecting is a good way to put it. it, it the restaurant business at the level that you operate at is not for everyone. Right. The advertising business is not for everyone. Um, you know, advertising and marketing are very popular majors. I think that and I don't have any statistical, but I, I got to believe that like 80% of people that start out in an ad agency year one out of college within five years, they've washed out of the age. They're in another industry for sure doing, doing something else. It just isn't for everyone. Well, I think anything that's like a doggy dog world, right? Like, you know, how many people became chefs because they saw Rachel Ray and Guy Fieri and Emerald and all these things. They're like, yeah, like that's being a chef. Like, Listen, motherfucker, the first time you you clean a, a fryer, you're about to learn. Like, this shit is not, it's not glorious, it's not glamorous, it's not beautiful. Like, the shit that we have to do, and then when you become an owner, fuck it, forget about it. Like, it changes completely. Like, there's days you're washing dishes and running food and cooking the food and doing the whole thing. If you're willing to make that sacrifice, then... Yeah, you should be willing to like try to strive to do more. That's definitely another parallel between the two industries is from the outside, it looks as as this one thing. And because and, we all relate to cooking, right? Well, we cook at home, we do certain and we like it and it's something that's pleasurable. And advertising, I think, is the same way. Like people think they know that because they're exposed to advertising. They edit a home movie on iMovie at home. <laughs> and and they, they, you know, it's... They don't give you the credit, like to understand, like, oh no, this takes like a lot of hours of learning and making mistakes and getting your hands slapped and burning, in your case, burning your hands and and all of that toil. And and in our hand, you know, in our case, it's like, you know, I started out in this business literally picking up the boss's dry cleaning, literally making photocopies. That's how I started out in the business because I didn't know shit and the only way you learn is just by being around it. And, and so you have to start at the bottom rung, but I, I think, I think you might agree. And I think from what I've seen of, of everything that I've seen from you, a dishwasher can become a great chef. Oh no. They, and they should be. Yeah. And they should if, be. If they, if that's what they want, a, a dish, the point <laughs> is the smart dishwasher isn't just washing dishes. He's looking around, seeing what's going on mm-hmm. and he's learning and he's learning through osmosis and through being around the scene. Well, it, it's always a, a two interesting things you just mentioned, like 
the dishwasher is always my favorite position because there's so much opportunity there, right? Like you're here. Let me find out about your fiber. Hey man, like you want to, you want to peel potatoes? You want to cut fries? You, what do you want to do? No, I just want to wash dishes. All right, cool. You just want to wash dishes. All right, that's fine. And then you have the other one that's like, all right, I want to, I want to dishwash, but I want to learn how to like cut the potato. I want to learn how to organize a walk-in. I was like, all right, well, there's that's a drive for that next thing. What's the next thing? Where, where do I go? There's something I can work with here. And I, I want to work with it for my benefit and I want you to benefit and I want you to fucking take this bitch and I want you to fucking run with it. The other parallel too is like you were washing, uh, you were doing dry cleaning and shit for people. Like my first job outside of Applebee's when I was a kid literally was just handing warm plates to the dudes that were cooking things. Like taking dishes out of a plate warmer to hand them to people and the only reason I started cooking on that line was because someone didn't show up for work and the the chef I had this um, <coughs> this uh, very flamboyant Mexican chef that he was he was a he was a delight he really was like such a, a cool dude and he was like what are we gonna do what are we gonna do I was like fuck it I'll do it and he was like yeah but you're just a plate warmer and I'm like that's yesterday yeah. What about today? Yeah. And he was like, all right, fuck it, do it. And then, you know, I started working the, the broiler station and, and I just I worked all my way down from like the small broiler to the big broiler to the entremet station to the sauce station. And it, like I worked through that whole kitchen for 12 months. That's a little bit of my experience. So I started in 96 in advertising. I had graduated college in the December of 91. I went into retail management. I worked for Walmart stores. I was an assistant manager in a Walmart store. I got married, got divorced, got sick, went to the hospital. They saved my life. And I was looking for a new career. I was going to become a high school history teacher. And a buddy of mine said, hey, why don't you come help us out at the ad agency? So I walked into an ad agency without ever having contemplated what went on in an ad agency for the first time. And it was a little creative boutique in Coral Gables called Creatability. You know that Publix on Monza? Yeah, it's right by my house. Yeah. Um, it was right near the, in the Kendar building on the fifth floor. And I worked there for seven years. And, you know, I literally, from picking up the boss's dry cleaning to becoming a, a planner or strategist in, in our business, all throughout the first seven years of my career. And, and it was the same thing. It was like when there was a vacancy, when there was a, a hole... They would plug me into it. And I, so I, I learned because it was a small agency. I learned the whole business, you know, um, top to bottom, which I think has served me well. Now I'm in a, I'm in a huge, you know, I'm part of a big, you know, reasonably sized agency for what we do, Hispanic advertising. And it, we're part of the biggest company in the world. But I think that I still bring that perspective of, you know, when the ad, the art director called in sick, Somebody had to resize the ads that needed to go out that day. So I had to learn how to do it. And so um, I think that that's served me well, kind of being plugged in to situations early on. But it's also like the, the interesting perspective of like planning life, you know, like you plan for life to be like you want to do a certain thing. You want to be a history teacher or whatever the fuck, you know, you, like life every day changes. And I think it's like the ability to pivot and to learn and to be, 
you know, a little more open to life is really what dictates who you are long term. And, you know, it was the same for me, right? Like I, I went to school to be a teacher and, um, and to learn certain things. And I ended up walking into a restaurant and fucking loving it. And then saying like, this is what I want to do forever. And then just so on and so forth. That wasn't my experience with advertising. In, in the beginning, I was doing it to kill time. I didn't really know. I couldn't find my niche within advertising. And it wasn't until at some point, the owner of the agency gave me a big raise. And he said, give yourself whatever title you want. And I didn't think he would like president and CEO. <laughs> so I started, I started looking. There I was, like that. Though. That's good. At the time, there was something called the, the Red Book, which was like a directory of advertising agencies. And I started looking through it and I saw this thing about account planning. And I realized, I started investigating what is account planning, account strategy. And I realized we didn't have that in our agency. We weren't doing that for our clients. And that's kind of how I found my niche within advertising. And it's, you know, it's paid off. And that was, you know, that was 20 years ago. So, I mean, it's, it's created a, a path. We're going to take a bathroom break here on Pancom Podcast. Enter bathroom break music. Beep 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 beep. That was good. That was very good. Beep 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 beep. Welcome to the second part of Pancom Podcast when we talk about Sri Lankan scammers. I think Mike is confusing. Mike is mixing up some things that happen in the news with my Instagram feed about <laughs> Chinese scammers, not this Sri Lankan. This actually may be the last Pancom podcast that we are able to publish. <laughs> <laughs> the Sri Lankans are coming. Yeah. Uh, oh, can you uh, talk about your experience and then I'll talk about oh, mine? Oh, uh, are you talking about my experience today? Yes. Okay, so today, let me, let me actually pull it up. Uh, people who follow me uh, on Instagram are... Apparently big fans of the uh, interactions that I post with Chinese <laughs> scammers. Yes. Um, and today I had what actually like it freaked me out just a little bit. Did um, it? You were scared? Not scared. You were was, scared. No, you no, were no, scared no. by your... Oh, no, not so scared. I, but, but, I, but I was like uh, maybe more creeped out than freaked out. Okay. It was, it, it was like, oh man, they're like doing some Googling now. Like, yeah. What's up with this? Yeah, you because know, I'll, I'll get um, uh, uh, these texts, which I later learned at least some people refer to as uh, pig butchering scams. Because it's all like uh, they're trying to woo you and, and seduce you until they finally ask you for money. So it's like they're fattening a pig until they're ready to, to butcher you and Oof, have you Venmo them. So uh, this time, but usually it's like some bullshit about... This, I mean, this pig is, you know, this pig needs to do something about, you know, yeah. the situation. Um, it, it's usually very, like, generic, you know, like, oh, uh, Mr. Johnson, have you, uh, are, have you, you know, filled out the paperwork to send to the golf club? And then, of course, you tell them, like, sorry, you have the wrong number. And then they tell you, you know, that uh, their assistant gave them the wrong phone number. And I'm so sorry, but maybe it's fate that we met and can we be friends? And then ine inevitably it turns to like, I am a Malaysian fashion entrepreneur who loves cryptocurrencies and world travel and, you know, whatever. So I, I, I like to have a lot of fun responding to these people. This time, though, it was good morning. This is Ava. We noticed that your podcast is down. So I thought like, man, these Chinese are 
like doing a lot more research now. They know that I have a podcast. <coughs> I say, excuse me? She says, you are excused. However, your podcast is coming down. I say, what podcast? Obviously, the food podcast. What do you mean? So at this point, I think like, okay, I'm dealing with a Chinese scammer. <coughs> you know, let me have some fun with this. They, they must have decided to maybe like, you know, they Googled the phone number before texting it. And, you know, it's easy to find that the number is connected to a podcast. So the podcast is coming down. I say, how do you figure? Sorry, it took so long. There were seven people complaining about your podcast. Seven. seven. A full seven. Seven of them. I say, complaining where? They say, at a YouTube office. So now I'm to believe that Ava is a YouTube uh, headquarters employee uh, who is supposedly fielding in-person complaints about Pankong Podcast that are uh, going to lead to its being taken down and ultimately canceled oh, for God knows language. what reason. Yeah. It must well no actually there, there ends up I ask like what are they complaining about? <coughs> uh, she says there were so many ugly men talking boring food. So many. <laughs> Amen, <laughs> sis. I say, oh no, boring food. I say, oh no, was who it the, was it the man who looks like Exhibit or the one who misplaced his beard trimmer? Too many ugly men talking boring food to keep track of. So many. They respond, it was the beard trimmer one. I hope you are preparing because your podcast is coming down in 12 hours. <laughs> I say, how do I prepare? They say, I don't know. Say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> That's so ominous. I love it. Yeah. I say, I'm sure there's something I can do to change YouTube's mind. They say, that's not my job. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it turns out that all along this was my seven-year-old uh, goddaughter. <laughs> Love that, that your seven-year-old goddaughter trolled you. <laughs> and she and she finally responds. Um, what was she said at the very end? I say, okay, I guess I'm doomed. She says, guess so, beard boy. <laughs> it's very like mega mind. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I love that. Yeah, awesome. guess so, beard boy. So anyway, that was the latest scammer uh, saga. I'm glad that I learned this before posting screenshots because usually I don't black out the phone numbers but apparently this was like her emergency phone that only exists I love exists. that she, she made it a point to fuck with you yes no no this is like her her favorite she, she's been obsessed with the idea of pranking people but this is the first time that it's actually been a real prank for being seven years old it took, it took her way too long to understand what a prank was she used I to like that. Oh. put like a banana on your head and like ah, I pranked you I'm like no you, that's not what a prank is get out of here well, our our scammer alert was uh, not a seven-year-old, and I, I still don't know who or where it's coming from, but apparently it's a little bit of a situation now. New York and San Francisco and Miami, one-star restaurants, uh, as in like one-star Michelin restaurants and other restaurants of note are receiving one-star Google reviews, right, Um from anonymous people with no explanation. And uh, then when you reach out to them, they're asking for $100 to $200 Google gift cards to take down the actual review. And uh, this just reminds me of all the times when I'm sitting on the can and I receive the call about my car insurance yeah. that my car is the, 60 years old. The warranty? The yeah. Extended the extended warranty? The extended warranty. And when I tell them my car is from 1961, then they hang up on me. But um, you beat me by five years. I have a 66 Dodge. Ooh, a Dodge. 
I'm intrigued. Um, it's, about, it's about as long as your Cadillac. Oh, I've seen it. That's right. I've seen it. You showed me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah 20 footers is what we call them. Yeah. yeah good old 20 footers. And um, the, uh, you know, like uh, the Heralds uh, wrote an article today and the New York Times wrote an article and I think San Francisco Eater wrote an article and they asked me like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, uh, fucking nothing. I don't fucking know. Cause we reached out to Google and we're like, well, this is a scam. And Google was like, there's nothing we can do for you. It doesn't, um, break any kind of rules. And we're just like, this is trash. So when they asked me what I was going to do, I was like, nothing. I mean, I don't fucking, what am I going to fucking do? I'm not going to pay these like a uh, weird ransoms. This ransom for a one-star review, God forbid, God forbid, if I would be doing that my whole life, I wouldn't be have, I wouldn't have the title of exhibit in the kitchen. Next to the Z. Um, yeah. Then um, it's just, it's very interesting, right? Like how low a human can get. I mean, that's not the lowest, but that's pretty interesting, right? Believe me, I know, um, I've experienced in my professional life a data breach in which there was nothing of value um, that was obtained by the hackers. But, you know, clients don't know what you have and what. And so they're very conservative. Attorney fees, ransom. It's it's a fucking horrible business and those people should burn in hell. (laughs) Amen, brother. Like, God bless. That's, yeah, you know, it's a. it's a very interesting uh, whole business that they have decided to make their legacy in life. And when they when they lay at their last lay in life, it's going to be like, man, this is what I achieved a bunch of money off of doing fuck all. Just- so I, I, I will say um, I was sent an article uh, by our, our friend Rebecca. Okay. Uh, I don't know where these one-star scammers fall in, in this spectrum because – it, I'm fascinated by the whole scam world. Right. Uh, I know you are. Like in India, I know that there are entire office buildings where there are like massive call centers. That I, I might have even sent both of you at different times uh, links to like these short documentaries about this. She sent me an article uh, about the fact that apparently it is a thing that some of these Chinese scammers, what they're doing is they're putting out job listings and then, like other, uh, you know, less educated, less aware, uh, Asian, sometimes not even Chinese, which is why I say like other Asians from other countries, will uh, will respond to the to the listings, thinking that they're moving for jobs with like Google and Facebook, and really they just end up in this weird like indentured servitude where they're like held for ransom and like physically abused and stuff. Now I don't know whether that's what's going wow, on here. Wow, it's so intense. No, there's a lot happening. Like I find the whole thing like fascinating. And then there's this like extra weird element that it ends up going back to like one star Google reviews. Yeah, very strange, very strange. So yeah, I mean, it, when uh, it was mentioned to me yesterday, I was like, "What?" And then yeah. um, uh, Danny, which is our communications, branding, and marketing director, PR, all the things. Um, she get her own all the things song. She she should get her own all the things song. Um, I mentioned it to her and she was like, yeah, this is like a thing. This is happening. I'm like, what? I just like, I don't, I, I don't pay attention to that stuff. And then Carlos Frias 
calls me today and asks me like for a quote on the thing and I'm like what the fuck is the world coming to that this is exact this is this is where we're at and just a question of like what are you going to do about it I'm like fucking nothing like fuck them yeah, I don't what care can you do, right? yeah what, what are you going to do you going to pay them off what, who are we hunt them down yeah we're going to uh, we're going to pay them off like no I'm not going to pay them off like fuck you and your one star review Google be better so it's interesting you mentioned Carlos Frias because something we didn't even get into at all really in in discussing today was the whole Cuba thing. And so yeah. how I met Nick actually was through blogging and blogging about Cuba and and uh, and Carlos Frias, you know, he famously went to Cuba and wrote his wrote a book. Um, it's just kind of a, no, a whole other chapter in my life, you know, blogging about yeah. Cuba and and working at Babalu Blog, at, at a, at, I was the editor at the time, still a contributor, rare contributor, but uh, the, uh, Carlos is an interesting dude, you know, who's you know, a sports journalist and then now is, you know, on, on your beat. So very cool. You want another beer? No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah, interesting dude. Good guy. Um you know, I have a lot of respect and love for Carlos. Obviously, we don't always see eye to eye all the time, but that's part of life and that's part of uh, the journey of life. And I think that, um, you know, I think what he adds to the community is very important for sure. Um, you know, when he when he called me today, he was like, you know, what do you think, like, what's going to make a difference? And I'm like, yeah, no, what you're doing. Yeah, what you're doing, what New York Times did. Even the New York New York Times, like, it's totally off subject, but New York Times had a line in their article they wrote about, like, the phenom of Miami food, and they said how major food group is, like, a major, uh, an important part of, like, Miami's evolution. Like, New York Times would be better, man. Like, fuck you, and, and fuck all that shit. Like, that's not the fucking truth at all. So, actually, Carlos highlighted that in something that he said today in one of his own personal social media stories, and um, I think he fucking nailed it, right? Like, that's not the fucking case. Miami is the reason why Miami is where it's at. And um, I th- journalism is, like, such a fascinating thing to me. Just, like, Nick like Nick is an actual journalist, right? Yeah. Shocking, but it's true. He's here, uh, sitting here with all these fold-out tables and doing this podcast, but he's an actual journalist, right? And um, Nick told me I should I should write a thing, and the this the struggle I've had with writing a thing, just like simple thing, has been so difficult for me because I'm just not a writer that I find journalism as like this missing piece of what uh, I, I kind of feel like what the world needs in a lot of ways. Uh, I, unfortunately, I think the profession right now is fucked. Like, you know, I think a lot of people... I mean, are, I, I, I'm with you 100%. I, I think a lot of people are in it for the wrong reasons. I think a lot of people... Um, What's the wrong reason? I, I think that they think that they're going to save the world rather than presenting... Uh, you know, there's a... There are things that are true and there are things that are untrue and then there are things that are a matter of opinion. And there's been a lot of blurring in in terms of journalism. And we've got a lot of... 
in a way, I, I believe in the United States, we always had this kind of fantasy that journalists were uh, unbiased and, and neutral, neutral observers, where I, I think in a lot of other countries, particularly in Western Europe, they didn't have that fantasy. I think if you landed at Heathrow Airport in the UK and you asked, what are the conservative newspapers and what are the uh, the left newspapers? They would the cabbie would tell you, no, this is the you know, and I don't think that there we we lived under this fantasy here, and um, I think there's also there's an interesting <clears throat> phenomenon in journalism that I've noticed, and now we're getting into kind of the political realm, which is dangerous, but. Um, it, journalism used to be a blue-collar profession, and then it became a a very elite, elite, elite profession, um, and that has created a lot of groupthink. I think in newsrooms, I don't. We talk about diversity, but there's not a ton of diversity of opinion in in most newsrooms. I don't think. But do you think groupthink comes from a higher power, or do you think it comes from the group itself? It comes from the group itself. I think you have basic you, so you don't think that anyone's like pushing that pendulum some way i'm i'm not a conspiracy theorist in that sense i'm, I'm not either yeah I'm, I'm, like, I, I, I think, like i just feel like money talks i think so. i think that i think uh, dios you know what i mean like like-minded people get together and like-minded people have gotten together in america's newsrooms and they present one way of looking at things and um I think it does a disservice to the to the profession. Yeah, um, I mean, I think in reality, like, I don't, I don't trust anybody. That's like where where I stand. It's like when it comes to news and it comes to politics, I don't trust any of them. You know, I I mentioned earlier, you know, my whole unvaccinated story and how I kind of, you know, in a way, I'm not even welcome in my own office because I'm I'm not vaccinated and and. I think it's my choice. It's, you know, it's my decision. I, you know, I, I was actually, I'm, I'm going to have, I have my own podcast. We talk about advertising and I'm going to have one of my mentors on. And one of the things that was interesting was the reason this guy became a mentor was that I saw a speech that he gave about five or six years ago. And he was talking about how all of the marketing profession was enamored with social media and social media is important but it was disproportionate to like really the strength of social media at the time. And, and I have the same feeling that the, the, the press at the time was covering social media as if it were the only thing that existed. And I think the same thing is happening now with COVID and the vaccines and all that. And so I, I, I just think when you get a bunch of like-minded people together, you're not going to, you're not going to get a diversity of opinions. And so, well, I think there's a lot of power in, in being there being a voice in the room of I don't agree with you, but I still respect you. That's and, the and way I, that's the way it used to be in this country. I, I think that there was a time when there were people in this country that believed in the First Amendment, particularly people on the left that said, I may not agree with you, but I'll fight to the death to defend your right to say it. And I think that we've we've that's long gone. Like it's well, you know, the one thing that I think we value uh, here the most, and like, I think this is why I get the comment always, like, you know, that Nick Jimenez, he's quite an interesting character, and I think it's because uh, Nick and I may disagree. I still 
love and respect Nick, you know, and I, I feel like that fiber, albeit however we want to structure that conversation can be somewhat lost, right? Because like, if, if we don't agree, like on a social issue, um, politics has become total warfare. Unfortunately, it's like no, no, no holds barred, no prisoners taken. And I think that's a net loss to society because we used to be able to agree to disagree and we, we can't anymore. And, and I think that there's a lot of value in that. And I think the more people that are willing to have that conversation of like, there's value in disagreement because through disagreement, you could find an agreement. Maybe. Um, Hablando se entiende. Right. Like, you know, I mean, you're, you're, we're never going to understand each other unless we talk to each other. And unfortunately, you know, the algorithms right now are set to divide us. Right, right. And, you know. I, I mean, I think that that's like the downfall when you talk about social media, right? Like when you talk about social media is like they cater to your algorithm and like what you want to see. And then it just like pumps you up to a certain thing. And for me... You know, social media is like just funny, dumb shit and brand awareness. But for some people, it is their only source of anything. And I, I feel like that is uh, that it's a, it's a lack of like believing in journalism or journalism like doing its thing. And it's also a lack of like self-awareness. Like, fuck, man, like just because someone created a meme in Oklahoma doesn't mean that this uh, meme from Oklahoma is like an actual fucking thing, you know? And it's having a little bit of, like, self-awareness to be like, that's not an actual fucking thing. It's just a fucking, some fuck in Oklahoma decided to say this thing. So we're going to go with it. I don't know. It, it's, it's all a became a gotcha now. And it's, you know, un- unfortunately, you know, it, it's, it's hard to know where this whole thing ends up. You know, we're really living in unprecedented times. We're more polarized than ever. And it sucks, which is kind of w- what I love about, you know, <coughs> you and your ultimately at heart what Ari- Ariette is about, right? Which is about food. Like food brings people together. And, and it's about, you know, let's, let's, let's commune around the table. Let's talk about things and, uh, you know, and, and yeah, I feel I, like it, our, our last real opportunity to have a conversation is over food. And and I think it brings, if you were looking at real versus virtual, right? There's nothing more real than breaking bread with somebody. Correct. And and compared to the bullshit that we have on Twitter where it's like hit and run. I'm going to say, you know, you're a dick because you, you don't agree with Roe v. Wade or whatever, whatever it is. You know, instead of like, hey, let's sit down. Let's have a glass of wine. Let's break bread together and let's talk. And let's be human beings to each other. I, I love the opportunity to disagree. For me, like it's a it's a driving thing. I love that. And the last real safe space I think to have that conversation is over food or drink. You know? And because the world is so fast, like everything is like just like it has to happen now. Like everything is so fast, everything is moving. It's a tweet. It's a post. It's a thing. Like I don't fucking know. Like but that's why. That's why you know when you travel. Like I've had experiences. You know, you you travel. You I'm in Europe, and by some weird coincidence, you end up in somebody's house and they make you a meal. Right. And those experiences are invaluable. Like I mean, how do you put a price on? You're a stranger in a strange land, and this person 
who you met on the street invites you in for dinner and they're making you a home cooked meal and suddenly your your eyes are open to a whole different way of, of thinking about things um i think those things get lost in this you know day and age of this bullshit and and you know hit and run i'm gonna i'm gonna score points and get likes because i attacked you because you have the wrong view well i mean click i mean clickbait is it's a real thing like clickbait is like a real thing and i don't know i don't think i know everything that like the both of you know right like when it comes to like clickbait like what that really means from like uh journalism standpoint or an advertising standpoint like what the weight that that shit really carries for me i just find it like all fucking dumb right because i i find a lot of value in the opportunity to have that conversation and we can disagree but i still want to hear your opinion because maybe you know something that i don't fucking know because i don't know everything and but we're also living in a world today that everyone is very self-assured that like what they know is what they know. Sure. What they know is like, that's all that matters. And, you know, I have the conversation with Nick all the time because Nick is in certain circles of the world that I don't know much about. So I'm fascinated about learning about certain things that I didn't know yesterday. Well, that's the true gift of life, right? Is like kind of finding out about things that you don't know about. Yeah, but right? everyone in today's world lives in this like very narrow it's very narrow. It's like, this is what I know. This is what I believe. This is what I want to believe. I, I think... And Curiosity and, is and maybe And maybe that's another parallel, you know, going back to or the narrative, which is the parallel between advertising, creative communications, and, and, and restaurant business, is that, you know, the good ones are curious and always looking for new input and new stimulus, right? Like, right. I'm a strategist, which means I need to know about consumers, I need to know about trends, I need to know what's going on in the world, I need to be open-minded, I need to be empathetic to consumers, whether I agree with them or not. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think in your business, you have to kind of be open to that as well. Like, what are the trends? Like, what are the, what are the things that are going on in the world? What are new boundaries that I may have not considered before, new ingredients? new things, wrinkles that I can bring to the table. Um, it's about open-mindedness. And I think that the more open-minded we are, um, the better we are. I, like, I've always, I, I say it like very often <coughs> in our meetings, like I'm, I want to know as much about the shit that I don't know. So surround yourself with the people that are as smart, if not smarter than you are and learn about the things that they know in their life experience. And I think life experience is so huge. You know, like I run in a lot of different circles, right? A lot of subcultures of like Miami and the world. And I'm fascinated about learning about all of them. But curiosity in today's world is kind of dead, you know, because people don't, they don't want to be curious. I'm curious to know why you disagree with me. I'm curious to know about your, your mindset. I'm curious to know about like all these things because I want to know what led you there. Right. And we could still disagree at the end of it all. We can still disagree and I'll shake your hand. I'll be like, you know, I disagree with you. That's okay. That's totally fine. I hope you still get to wherever you're trying to get to. I don't wish well, I think we're it, all searching, right? Like nobody's got the, yeah, but I, I don't, I, the, at the end of the day, I think part of what cl the closed mindedness of the world is, is an effect of not searching for more. 
Like if you're not searching for more, you're not striving for that award that you have a tattoo on your leg about, yeah. right? Like you're you're striving to just like be with the status quo, right? And and I think that's why like socially, maybe sometimes I can be a little off putting, but it, I I'm just in, incredibly curious about what it is that you know that I don't know and what led you to that decision or that stance that you have, and again. After we talk about it, I can still disagree, and that's cool. But I just want to know why you got there. Yeah, I think people, unfortunately, have a a problem that they feel that if you, they're disagreed with, that somehow it's a reflection on them. I think that's insecurity, though. Uh, of course it is. But we're all, you know, we're all, I, I like to tell my wife, we're all damaged goods, right? Like we all have our traumas and our, and our things. And we talked about self-awareness earlier. Mm. And... Some people aren't self-aware enough to say, you know what, he has his opinion, I'm not going to change his mind. Let me listen to what he has to say and, you know, at least I can understand where he's coming from. Doesn't mean, like you said, doesn't mean I have to agree with you. Um, I think we've lost that civility in our in our current environment and it's, it's unfortunately, things are unraveling pretty quick right now and yeah. I'm not very optimistic. I have optimism, but I I think that the saying that you're that we're all damaged goods, except the fact that we're all damaged, because there's no like perfect life. Of course, well, there there is there is no the ether there is we're, no ether of perfect life. Yeah, we 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 all have been shaped by imperfect experiences in our life. Whether we were abused as children or. We were rejected or we were fat and we got, we were ostracized or everybody's got traumas. Even, you know, it's funny because like even a lot of like the beautiful like models, like the Victoria's Secret models, like they went through gawky stages, like when they were adolescents and at a certain point in time they had self doubts and later they blossomed. It's like we all kind of have these traumas that we carry through our lives and unfortunately they repeat themselves and like, it's like you're not that 12 year old child anymore but we still kind of think we are or we revert to that sometimes and it's just uh i mean just like to piggyback on two things that you said like the the perfect model right probably thinks that they're not perfect of course you may think that they're perfect i may think they're perfect nick may think that they're perfect but they themselves see themselves as fucked or imperfect and i find like the biggest quality of food, like the best food I've ever had in the world has been perfectly imperfect. And like that, that statement and like uh, so many chefs don't get it. Like great food is, is a moment of perfect imperfection, you know, because it was a cook going through a day. Maybe they're hungover. Maybe they worked 12 hours. Maybe they went through a thing, but they put up the best pasta that that person's ever had. And it was perfectly imperfect. Because when you strive for like that perfect food, it becomes sterile. And the same thing is going for that model, right? That like they're striving for this perfection, but it's sterile. Like there's no realness there. There's nothing like real behind it. And I, I find people in today's world aren't willing to accept the perfectly imperfect. They're not willing to accept like the fact that like, yeah, you're fucked. I'm fucked. Like everyone is damaged goods and it's okay to be damaged but accept the fact that you're fucking damaged. And then then what do you do from there? I think that's the, the challenge to everyone is, like, okay, 
X, Y, and Z happened to me when I was a kid. I wasn't in control of it. But now I am an adult. I am in control. And how do I take that and move forward? And so, like, I could blame, you know, I mentioned my, my issues with anger management. How do I move on from that? Like, okay, it doesn't matter how I got there. The point is I got there and I realized, okay, I got only I'm responsible to make that change. For sure. I, you know, it's, I was actually play. I mean, this is, I've never said this, but I was placed in anger management at 14, right? Cause my parents were divorced at when I was 13 and that sucked, right? Because I was an angry little fat fuck. Right. And, and it was like, um, I didn't know where to place the anger, right? Like was, I was just an angry person. That's why I played football for so long because I, I could just hit things and it yep. was, and it was fine. You know, it was okay. It was a it was, sanctioned it was a, place where you can be violent, right? And and it was and it was okay, but as I got older, like the the anger uh, turned into like reclusiveness. Like I'm I'm a I'm a recluse by nature. Like I like to be alone. I I welcome being alone because I can't be angry about anything. You can only be angry at yourself, and at that point, it's a conversation with yourself. And I think that like anger management, even at 14, I still think about it. You know, I don't know, that was 23 years ago or whatever it was. And I still think about those things. And I, I learned so much in that small time frame when I was sitting in a corner of a couch, like just being angry that I was there, you know. And through therapy and other things, like I learned like that experience taught me a lot because, you know, it kind of shaped how I was as a young adult and as an adult, you know. So it's interesting that you went through anger management too. So if I had a parting thought, for people who are, have hung on this long. Have they hung on? Uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I pro- probably not. But I, if I had a parting thought, I think it's, you can teach an old dog, an old dog new tricks. I yeah. think that, you know, there's, it's never too late to kind of confront the demons in your life and, and really decide to make a change for the better. Um, you know, on a positive note, you know, at, you know, in 2016, I bought a sailboat. It was on a lark and it changed my life. Like now I'm a huge avid sailor and it's, it's like a big part. Take me sailing. I've never been sailing. Oh, uh, I will gladly take you sailing. I love that. I love taking, I love taking people. I'll I'll bring a lot of uh, sunblock. I I, I, I love taking people sailing. But, you know, at, you know, for here, I thought you were going to like bring something everywhere. I'm bringing all the sunblock. (laughs) I bring some beers and and uh, okay. and bring some food and I'll, I'll I'll provide the boat, but you know at 47 years old I I, I took on uh, sailing and it was something that I learned as a new skill, and you know I'm like I'm I'm now it's like my my passion my you know Great. my That's my amazing. everything so. You know, that would be the thing I would say is it's never too late. You could always you could always make a change for the better in your own life. You could always learn a new skill. You could always find a new passion and uh, I would chase it. Yeah, I mean, confronting the demons is something that people are not super like keen on, right? Like confronting the demon in front of you. But a better life is on the other side. I mean, 100%. It, it's it's on the other side if you if you find the guts to do it. There's a better life on the other side. Woo! Second part of this podcast really took off, and I fucking love that. Post-bathroom break. Ready for the wind-up? Yeah, let's do it. People, this is where we do our parting recommendations. I will uh, 
I'm gonna take the liberty of kicking things off. Just for are you? Oh, of, you uh, came prepared. Just to get my my thing out of the way, uh, I'm gonna recommend a podcast other than ours. The podcast is called Sleep with Me. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. This is a. It's like a sleep aid podcast. So sort Ooh. of an alternative to if uh, you know you're the sort of person who likes having white noise or waterfall sounds. This is just a guy. I do that shit all the time. This is just a guy who, in like this very monotone voice. Just talks. And Can you, you do an example of the voice? Uh, I, I would do a terrible No, but job. come on. Just try it. Some, something along the lines of, well, you know, we were doing the podcast, and you know how podcasts go. Sometimes you're talking, and other people are talking. And and it's just like that. It's just like borderline gibberish about nothing. It's Maybe just, more people would listen to us if we did that. It's So I'm recommending specifically episode... 1084, 1084. He's been at it for a long time. He's got, what the fuck? He's got a lot of sponsors. Holy shit. And in episode 1084, you are falling asleep to the sound of this gentleman uh, perusing an old Sharper Image catalog. <laughs> That's so amazing. It's so good. He's going on about like, oh, and look at this. They've got this. Uh, it's a suit of armor. It's only $50 shipping. Uh, it's only $50 <laughs> shipping. For like a $2,600 suit of armor from the Sharper Image. Oh it's so God. good. So And, and it, it's, it's like it's everything you could want in a late night podcast. Like until you actually fall asleep. There's all this great like Sharper Image nostalgia. When I was a kid, I used to love popping into the Sharper Image at Dayland Mall. Same. Okay, Sir Lancelot. Well, I mean, I was I was there for all the for the foot all, foot massager uh, things. Yeah, foot massagers and and laser involved technology and the thing that you were supposed to like wear on like, the helmet that was supposed to regrow your hair with lasers. You have enough hair, sir. I do. I do. You're in yeah. good shape. But there were there were a lot of good things. They had a lot of model cars for some reason. Uh, so anyway, episode ten eighty four of Sleep with Me. If you want to fall asleep to the sound of that guy. Uh, flipping through an old sharper image catalog. That's, that's my, awesome. That's my recommendation. So, uh, my recommendation is a audiobook or book, whichever you prefer, um, called Finding Florida. I'm a, I w- I'm a transplant. I was born in Philadelphia. My parents, my parents moved down here when I was only seven years old. So I. I'm as close to a native Floridian as you kind of get down here. You're good. If you came at seven, you're yeah, solid. Yeah, I'm 52 now, so I've been down here a long time. But um, I've always longer been, than me. I've always been fascinated with American history, and I'm, I'm a proud Floridian. And uh, this book, uh, Finding Florida by T.D. Allman, um, really lets you know what the true history of Florida was. I mean, Florida's a a history uh, is a state with a really backward history. A lot of people that have attempted to get rich quick in Florida and failed, and and ultimately met their demise. It's a. Uh, it sounds so current. It's a. Uh, it, it it really is because Florida history does. Re- it's on a repeat loop of yeah. people, you know, trying to come here and find their fortune, exploit the natural resources, and end up like losing all their shit and. And either getting killed or moving on to some other place. So uh, I, I highly recommend the, the book. It's uh, informative. You'll learn about characters um, in Florida's history that the historians have neglected to tell you that were super important. Like, you know, people like Chief Osceola, um, who was only partially Indian. Um, his name was really Billy Powell. 
Cool. But um, yeah, cool. It's a cool book. I love that. So I have a two-part parting recommendation. Um, first is a show. It's a show that everyone watches and everyone knows. Stranger Things, the last season, has been very entertaining. And um, I have, uh, not because I wanted to, but I've fallen asleep several times in the last episode because it's two and a half hours. And um, I just, you know, life is pretty busy right now so I just end up falling asleep but like the the whole season is just incredibly well produced well written acting is great I fucking love it I you know anyone who's into like pseudo sci-fi and somewhat scary shit I guess it's a good fucking show so I would jump in there and I would watch it if you haven't watched any of the seasons just fucking catch up I guess I don't know the rest of the world is I don't watch this latest season but I've, I've watched everything up till now it's it's good it's good. I, I I made it a I made it a point to kind of like deep dive. I wanted to watch Peaky Blinders the last season first before I dove into it, and Peaky Blinders was definitely worth it. And then another parting recommendation would be um, if you're in Miami to visit uh, B Side Sushi, which is ran by the Chang Gang, which is uh, Val and Nando Chang, but primarily right now ran by uh, Val Chang and the food is delicious they're making a lot of menu changes it was uh, I've been three times in the last like six weeks and it's incredibly good Um, what's the name again? B-Side Sushi it's actually located in a food court that is 1-800-LUCKY in Wynwood and anyone who knows me knows that I will try like a thousand percent to never be in Wynwood, but I will go for their food. I'm going to check it out because my wife is a sushi lover. Yeah, no, it's great. You know, Peruvian Nikkei style sushi. So uh, interesting flavor combinations. Um, It's just really fucking good. So I would recommend that. And those are my parting recommendations. And now for shameless plugs, Henry will let you go first. Shamelessly plug all of your things where people can find you and your stuff and maybe agency things, whatever. So uh, I work at Zuby Advertising. We specialize in Hispanic advertising. Um, uh, would love to take on your business if you're interested. Um, I personally uh, am the webmaster at babalublog.com. Um, we talk about Cuba and Cuban American affairs. Um, and that's pretty much all my plugs. Michael Belcher. All the things, but I'm going to add one. Um, Tomorrow, we uh, are opening the Gibson Room. Uh, The Gibson Room, which is the artist formerly known as The Mighty. And uh, that was there for six years. My old hood. Yeah, uh, my forever hood. Um, We took over that location four months ago. And we have made some really solid efforts to change the culture of that space and change the dynamic of that space. And I'm very, very, very excited about um, kind of what we have coming up there. It's very fun food menu, very interesting, um, really good product, really interesting stuff, charcuterie, uh, just like it's a good time. Everything from ramen to house-made pasta to just, like, good times. And then we have a very 
delicious cocktail menu that was crafted by Tom Lasher Walker, our beverage director, and we are on a journey to kind of introduce or reintroduce blues and soul live music back to that part of the neighborhood uh, of Miami. That's and a great space, by the way. Congrats. I fucking love that space. I think the bones of that space are incredibly cool. Um, and whoever the previous owners were, I mean, did a good job. Like, it, it, there was nothing like that in that area. And it's right. really, really nice. So I think that's that, awesome for you. I think that the, I mean, uh, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but I, I tried to buy that space 13 years ago. Wow. And uh, just like through the osmosis of life, it just kind of came back to me. Um, and, you know, we made a deal with the previous owners and uh, they're still on as business partners. And, um, you know, I, I feel like our ideas and our goals for that space are something that that neighborhood will value. Um, I think it's the tavern or bar that Miami really wants. And, and I'll I've, be checking it out because I'm still close. I'm, I'm really close to that area. So I've, Good. Good. Awesome. Come bring bring one bring all um so uh, that actually reopens tomorrow which is the 14th of July and um you know we're going to be reopening live music shortly after um but the food is is delicious cocktails are delicious the vibe is great so i'm very excited about it awesome and I, I will say it's great to have all that elaboration but i'm pretty sure that the gibson is in the new all the things song all the things. I still gotta recommend all my shit. I mean, we've, we've yeah, done this 80 times already. All the, the things. All the, the things. Arietta Nave. Scapegoat and the Taurus. Chugs and the Gibson. All the things. All the things. At this point, just all the things. Pig and the Powell. Scoops and Laurel. Miami gets the world. All the things. All the things. Insert song. All the the things. All the things. All the the things. Hmm. It's like Arietta Nave, Jugs and the Gibson. <laughs> oh, the the things. <laughs> are, are you the jingle? No, uh, we, we no. actually have a listener who's made like at least three different DJ all the Noah. things jingles. Awesome. D- DJ Noah. Uh, the, there was one. What, what's the name of the song that this one was like modeled after? I couldn't tell you. Oh, uh, uh, one of the Sade songs? No, there was the Sade one. Right. And then this one is the like the chorus of the song it's playing off of. It goes, duh, duh. So duh, I know duh. you're a big Sade fan. I like her. I, 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 whoa, I, whoa, whoa. I like her, but but the, the what I was where I was going was the best seats I've ever had at a concert were for a Sade concert. I was in oh. the fourth row. She was under the weather. She was drinking tea between songs to keep her voice up. Uh, amazing, what a voice. amazing. What a voice. What a voice. Fourth, fourth row. I've never had better seats for a concert in my I, life. She was I, amazing. I got to tell you right now, I'm on the line. I'm on a wait list for Bruce Springsteen tickets. And I cannot fucking wait. I really want those tickets. Blinded so. by the light. Oh, man, but there's so much more darkness on the edge of town. Like, I just can't. I, oh. Rosalita. Yeah, just the whole fucking thing. No surrender. 
you know, and just going back to the mighty, the, the chef at the mighty, which is a very dear friend of mine, Chris Hughesby, which was the second guest that we ever had on Panko podcast, um, 109 million episodes ago. Um, he, uh, he's the one who got me into Bruce. So, uh, Chris and I will ride in my van all the way to, uh, to Orlando to if watch the, van, the show. If the van is rocking, don't bother knocking. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And now you know <laughs> the rest of the story of Mike and Chris's road trip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Um, finally, Pancom Podcast, shameless plugs. You can find Pancom Podcast at Pancom Podcast on all the social media things. DadeMag.com slash Pancom Podcast. Give us all of your money at patreon.com slash Dade get your coffee mugs get your coffee mugs at Dade mag it's patreon.com slash Dade mag d-a-d-e-m-a-g and follow Petey the dog at p-e-a-t-y the dog right on Instagram that's it that's all we got boom